basically I have such a very different view on it that you really can't say that I'm just someone out there uh, who is telling stories about Bigfoot because I shy away from that. I'm not, uh, I'm not that camp. That's why I very carefully uh, entitled my book Recasting Bigfoot. I'm not destroying it, but I am changing the very appearance of the entire pursuit. Ladies and gentlemen, Bidol of America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big thanks to all the folks who joined us last week for the season premiere of BOA Audio Season 6. And thanks to all the great people out there who have been spreading the word about the return of BOA Audio. This week we are coming at you with a real barn burner of a program. We're going to be tearing at the fabric of the Bigfoot Enigma with acclaimed researcher Gian Kassar, author of the sure-to-be-controversial Recasting Bigfoot, uncovering the truth about Sasquatch amidst the hype of Bigfoot. This book has just been released. I was honored to have been sent an advanced copy by Gian because I was really interested in what he had to say and when I sat down to read the book I was just completely stunned and blown away by where he goes with his research. Since Gian sent me a review copy ahead of time we lucked out and this is his first ever interview on the new book Recasting Bigfoot so you're gonna get some seriously fresh and new information here on the program. Let me give you a little rundown of what we're going to be talking about. First, the big picture here is that Gian is going to detail his remarkable thesis, which suggests that the current conception of the North American Bigfoot is fundamentally wrong, and that many of the creatures called Bigfoot around the world are really a variety of undiscovered bipedal primates. And amidst all that, Neanderthal-slash-feral humans are also lurking and adding to the Sasquatch mythos. Take a moment now and think about what I just said. That's some seriously provocative stuff from Gian Kassar. Along the way here in this conversation, he's going to take us step by step through the process by which Bigfoot was created in contemporary folklore. He's going to blow up the popular vision of the creature and replace it with an altogether different yet still quite enigmatic series of beasts. Along the way, we're going to talk about the Native American legends of Sasquatch, the early years of Bigfoot research, the Patterson film, the antics of Ray Wallace, and creatures such as the Loisy, the Almas, the Abominable Snowman, the Skookum, the tale of the wild woman Zena, and the Russian studies of their mysterious creatures. Plus, of course, and as always, tons and tons more. It is a mind-blowing edition of the program that constitutes a must-hear episode for anyone even remotely interested in the Sasquatch phenomenon, as Gian Kassar shares his challenging, enlightening, and fearless research. It is definitely going to be an instant classic edition of BOA Audio, and one that is sure to generate discussion and debate for weeks, months, and probably years to come. 
I would be remiss if I did not mention that Gian Kassar has appeared on the program in the past, way back in Season 4, around this time of year, as a matter of fact, in a two-part edition of the program, talking about his exhaustive research into the Bermuda Triangle. If you haven't checked out that two-parter, you're definitely going to want to go back and give it a listen, because you rarely hear the Bermuda Triangle discussed on shows out there anymore, and we devoted a serious chunk of Season 4 to that topic when we welcome Gian Kassar to the program on his first visit. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Gian Kassar, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Gian Kassar is recognized as the leading authority in the world on the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle, the man responsible for taking the subject out of the haze of two decades of debunker-driven obscurity and placing it in its actual and often disturbing light. Gian's tendency for finding every scrap available has gained him popular recognition as Generation X's number one investigator of the most famous phenomena topics long established by the 1970s, uncovering them for an entirely new generation, but now with actual documentation instead of the endless hype and hyperbole of their public marketing. He presents them as all facts must be presented in a mature and objective manner. His website is www.bermuda-triangle.org. Pretty simple, bermuda-triangle.org. Gian has a whole section on his website devoted to recasting Bigfoot, so you can find out a whole bunch more information on the new book and how to get your hands on it there, so be sure to check it out. With all that said, folks, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 23rd, 2010. Gian Kassar talking about his research into the Bigfoot phenomena on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. I am just thrilled this week to have this interview on tap for you folks. Our guest was on the program a couple of years ago talking about the Bermuda Triangle. He is, of course, really the world's preeminent Bermuda Triangle researcher. And we did a two-week episode, two-parter, that covered his exhaustive research into the Bermuda Triangle. And at the end of that interview, he teased what we're going to be talking about here on this week's edition of the program. He said he was casting his eye towards Bigfoot and Sasquatch and, you know, the whole bipedal hominid issue with a new book that he was working on. And at that time, I was like, this sounds amazing. I can't wait to hear it because I knew it was going to be controversial. And as I can gather from having read it over the last couple of days, it is certainly going to create quite a stir in the world of cryptozoology. Let me first, of course, introduce him. He is the author of Into the Bermuda Triangle. As I said, he's one of the world's preeminent Bermuda Triangle researchers. He's also got a new book out, they flew into oblivion, which details the Flight 19 story that is really huge and famous, of course, for its attachment to the Bermuda Triangle. But the book we're going to be talking about here this week is Recasting Bigfoot, Uncovering the Truth About Sasquatch Amidst the Hype of Bigfoot. And, of course, he is Gian Kassar. Welcome back to the program, buddy. I am really looking forward to talking to you here on the show this week. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. We started out with the bio background last time we talked to you, and so folks can go back and check that out. What I really want to know here to start things out in this conversation is, you know, as I said in the introduction, you're the world's preeminent Bermuda Triangle researcher, so what made you decide to look at Bigfoot? They're so, you know, disparate. They're so far across the divide of the paranormal. Well, originally I always wanted to be billed as typical of Generation X, 
we grew up in the 1970s with all the phenomena unexplained that was so popular back then, the old Sunshine Classic documentaries and In Search Of, and I finally got interested in 1990 to stop being a spectator and look into the stuff myself. And so it's really for the Bermuda Triangle I became quite well known. But I was doing Bigfoot at the same time. I just seldom spoke about it. It's not something that is easy to just, uh, it's not a question of finding documents and comparing data. You have to talk to people, you have to go out on the hunt. It's not something very easy to film someone doing. I've been asked to do documentaries for 10 years now, and I've actually declined because I know that business too well. Bigfoot documentaries, you mean? Yes. Oh, wow. And uh, it's, it, they want to you know, sit you on the side of a road under a tree, and you're a talking head again. They don't wish to go with you and actually go look on expedition. Well, a couple do, so I am going to be doing a couple of documentaries, history, TLC, and actually possibly another uh, independent pilot being done. So people are going to see me more frequently as a research, as a searcher for Bigfoot. Uh, but basically, I have such a very different view on it that you really can't say that I'm just someone out there uh, who is telling stories about Bigfoot because I shy away from that. I'm not... Uh, I'm not that uh, I'm not that camp. That's why I very carefully uh, entitled my book Recasting Bigfoot. I'm not destroying it, but I am changing the very appearance of the entire pursuit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's an understatement. <laughs> I mean, you're this book completely blew my mind. I'm just completely blown away by what you what you're saying here in this book. Um I grew up sort of in the school of the flesh and blood um, you know, mysterious animal and over time having studied this in in the paranormal field i sort of turned more into the interdimensional end and then reading this book you've kind of pulled me in a whole different direction that i never would have even considered i need to give it a whole like second look you've, you've given it a whole fresh look really you've, you've appreciate the fabric of this in, in my eyes and in my mind for this for this strange subject it can be paid yeah, dude, it's it's amazing. I mean, it's really folks who are interested in Bigfoot should go out and get this book because it completely just blasts away the paradigm of Bigfoot, what it's all about, and what the hell really happened here. That's just, why he's never been found because no one really ever went looking for the actual entities behind this. They were looking for this cone-headed uh, ape-man Gigantopithecus, which is absolutely not anything the Indians spoke about. It's not what has been reported in America in any old journal. It is, uh, you can probably pinpoint the day that the Yeti, that's what people really think this thing is, that the Yeti stepped across the Pacific Ocean and landed in America with an entirely different foot and a different makeup job, and it's, it's simply so much pernicious folklore. Yeah, yeah. It casts a huge blow to the, I guess you could say, American Bigfoot and, you know, that whole romanticized Pacific Northwest aspect of it, uh, you know, of America. I guess let's just sort of dive into the book here because I've got a ton of notes on it and I really devoured it because I've always been a Bigfoot enthusiast or I guess we should call it more Sasquatch because that's sort of the... Uh, <laughs> the well, it's become so intertwined now we have to dissect the nomenclature. what is Sasquatch and what is Bigfoot. Yeah, absolutely. What, yeah. what should we call Bigfoot and what should we call Sasquatch? Well, I guess let's start out with... I guess your general thesis, I think, and that is, I'm going to try and sum it up best here, and, and feel free to obviously extrapolate and correct me if I'm wrong. I think what you're trying to say in the book is that based on 
J.W. Burns' research in Western Canada back in the day in the early uh, 1900s and his interaction with the, I guess you could call them Native Canadians, uh, they said that there were two tribes of these wild men, one sort of like a feral human, I guess is sort of the best way to put it, in, in terms of people would kind of understand, and the other being sort of a, a, a man-beast, a primate of sorts. So one was sort of like could communicate and interact more with people, and the other was really just a more of a wild animal almost. As we would have to dissect it, the Indians insisted they were humans. Mm-hmm. And one of the tribes could speak Douglas or something akin to the Douglas dialect, which would be the Indian tribal dialect. But the earliest Bigfooters... And this is all very innocent on their part. I'm not being acrimonious, but the earliest Bigfooters completely overlooked the entire concept of two tribes. The Indians were explicit. There were two tribes of Sasquatch, Mm -hmm. what they called Sasquatchmen. Sasquatch is merely J.W. Burns' anglicized word for the Chinook jargon Sasquaha George. That's that's as stunning as Sasquatch is. Sasquaha Chach is how the Indians would have pronounced George, Chach. Okay. King King George was Kinchoch, and uh, uh, Britain was Kinchochaeli. That was King George Island. So Sasquaha was the district name in British Columbia before it was known as the Chehalis District, and it means place of the wild man. So Sasquaha George was the wild man of the Sasquaha District, and from their pronunciation, that's where we get Sasquatch. And so white man overlooked that the Indians definitely spoke of people. We innocently mixed all this kind of Indian artwork and stories, old journals of, well, what is it, of a hairy, who knows what it is. Old newspaper journals talked about something that was kind of after the fashion of a human. They were called animal humans. They were hairy. They were man-sized. The... Indians insisted Sasquaha George was a giant, but to them, the shorter races of the Pacific Northwest meant six and a half feet tall. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you even go down to the uh, down to the Apaches in Arizona and so forth, they're shorter too. They think six and a half foot tall uh, Europeans are giants. And that was clarified by J.W. Burns, the Indian agent for the territory that introduced us to the stories of his beloved Indians. That these were people, they're six and a half tall, and that's giant to the Indians. Well, to us, giant, of course, means something bigger. It means something eight or nine feet tall. And so the whole concept spread amongst the whites, and that these were giant Indians, or whatever. And so they had a fairy tale image to them, even though the Indian stories really are not much of a fairy tale. But when, in 1951, is when it really, I should backtrack, J.W. Burns wrote his first article for McLean's magazine in 1929, the April edition. And so throughout the 1930s, he finally brought to the whites a clarification of these old Indian stories of the Sasquatch. And this became quite a fascinating thing for Canadian whites. It was it became a fairy tale to them. It was a wonderful bit of folklore. And nobody was really sure what the truth was behind it. Those who wished to believe it thought they were just giant Indians who lived a very primitive lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, But then, in uh, 1951, something that was very world famous, it was no one really heard about the Sasquatch in America. Bigfoot, of course, was unknown at that time. Mm-hmm. But something was 
very world famous, and that was the Yeti, the abominable snowman. And uh, the British were all over that. That was one of the, the delights of Britain. They're, the very respected anthropologists were sure that this could be Gigantopithecus, which merely means giant ape, that this was some kind of bipedal uh, prehistoric ape that had survived, that this could show us how evolution happened. Uh, the, the Yeti and abominable, abominable snowman were considered one and the same thing. And it was just so enormously popular. In 1951, it took on a very real uh, persona when Eric Shipton and Michael Ward on the 1951 Everest expedition photographed these very bizarre footprints. And this is to, the, to this day, the Shipton photo is believed to hold the print of an unknown bipedal primate. It has a very strange footprint. It's hard to describe. You merely have to look at the picture. It's a famous picture. And that is believed to be the Yeti footprint. And there was two of them that walked down the glaciers. They followed the footprints, Michael Ward and Eric Shipton. And they took a picture of the clearest one. He says it was as clear as if it was imprinted in wax. And this electrified the world. Here was proof, finally, of the abominable snowman. And it just, it was everywhere. The Daily Mail of Britain sponsored this huge expedition of six uh, qualified researchers and 250 Sherpas, the guides in Nepal, and they went up into the Himalayas. Six months, right? That's how long it was? I believe it was, yes. Yeah, that's months. amazing when you think about it in today's time. No one's putting yeah. that kind of work into, into getting these things. The 1954 Daily Mail-inspired Yeti expedition, and it inspired motion pictures and all sorts of things. Well, at that same time, uh, in 1915 December, when the Daily Mail was announcing this worldwide, uh, a very young Swiss immigrant to Canada named Rene de Hinden, whom almost anybody in Bigfootery knows who that was. He became one of the greatest Bigfooters there was. He heard these announcements, and his boss in Calgary, Canada, said those things are in British Columbia. You don't have to go all the way to the Himalayas to find them. That really got him started, and when he moved west to Vancouver, he was doing all this research. He truly believed that the Sasquatch and the Yeti were one and the same thing, and that's where the, it began. That's where the problems began, it seems. That's where the problems began. That's <laughs> when, uh, perfectly put, when the Sasquatch began to lose its, I mean, it was still a fairy tale to many whites. The Hinden tried to get uh, a new newspaper man to the Sasquaha area in Agassiz, a named John Green involved, and he was skeptical. But uh, things began to happen. In British Clim in 1958, British Columbia would celebrate its uh, centenary, and people were wondering what cultural symbol should be used to celebrate this, and of course the Sasquatch was one of them. It was so famous there. And uh, this is what got everybody talking about Sasquatch. And although Green poo-pooed the whole idea that this was some kind of yeti uh, from the Himalayas that had migrated over the Bering Land Bridge, we've all heard of that theory where all the old world animals came over to the New World, mm -hmm. that this happened in some ancient time, uh, he heard from a friend of his this interesting story, and that was the famous Ruby Creek story, what became the famous Ruby Creek story, the, uh, the Chapmans, the Indians who had their own farm at Ruby Creek, 12 miles up from Agassiz, and... In 1941, this incident happened in which a in which Jeannie Chapman, the mother, saw 
the Sasquatch. The children, the little girl Rosie ran in first. This giant man, she called a giant hairy man, was walking across the field, came to the farm where they lived, and to the husband was gone at that time. So she took her children, used the house as a shield, and took them down to the creek and got them to friends. And that, uh, the Sasquatch walked around the area because George Chapman came back, found his family gone. He followed the tracks. It got into the outshed. It uh, broke into a, a barrel of salmon, salted salmon, and ate on it. Apparently went down to the river, washed the salt off, walked over the uh, Canadian Pacific Railroad fence, one foot on one side, one foot on the other, and that's a 48-inch tall fence. And that's how big this thing was. Uh, Jeannie Chapman estimated it was seven and a half feet tall, had an unusually small head for its size, and that terrified her. It came back several times during the week, and she finally said, forget it. And the family moved, and the entire farm went fallow and finally dilapidated. John Green heard the story, and he started backtracking all this, found out a newspaper article mentioned it in 1941, in which it uh, condemned it as a 10-foot-tall bear, one of the largest ever. <laughs> and uh, then he found out the man he already knew by the name of Gustav Tifting was one of the two men who actually went out there and investigated the farm afterward because the Indians were so excited about a report of Sasquatch. I mean, this was the Vancouver province that even reported this. Mm -hmm. That's how big a stir was created. Turns out that one of our deputy sheriffs in Washington, Joe Dunn, went over because he heard about these things and was very in interested. And with Tifting, they went out to the farm, traced uh, the tracks from the forest, found out, you know, were in the outshed, examined salmon, uh, walked around, followed the whole thing, followed it over the fence, was amazed that this thing simply stepped over a 48-inch fence, one foot on one side, one foot on the other, went over the railroad track and up a mountain. And Dunn was smart enough to trace one of the footprints. They were two inches deep in the potato patch. They crushed the potatoes underneath, and he did a perfect tracing of this. And John Green found Dunn's son. Dunn had passed away by 1957 when Green was started to investigate, found Dunn's son, saw the original tracing, and was able to trace the footprint. And we had, for the first time, an actual tracing of the fabled Sasquatch foot. Well, it's not a human foot at all. It's nothing even close. It's humanoid. It's a long foot, long heel. But the thing is, it's no Yeti footprint. It's nothing close to the Yeti. A human footprint is closer than the Yeti. Mm -hmm. But this this started it all, and why it, it it's, it's a long introduction to how this all happened is it's very significant, is that uh, Bigfoot then happened in 1958, and that was just nationwide news. That was at Bluff Creek, far from the Sasquaha. These enlarged human footprints turned up in Northern California in the Klamath Mountains uh, in October 1958, and John Green went down to investigate, and he... He couldn't believe it at first. He talked to people. He talked to someone named Bob Titmus, who became another famous Bigfooter. And they they were just unbelievable to him, these large footprints. And he finally went back again in November when more footprints appeared on the sandbar. And he was convinced. And this, the Humboldt Times, which dished out every story coming from the logging areas in uh, Northern California, got all this world news with the AP, Bulletin, everything. And Green was certain that this was a Sasquatch. And with DeHinden and he becoming friends now, Green now believed that the Sasquatch were not giant hairy Indians. They were not a myth. They were real. And what's worse, they were a Yeti. And a Yeti and a Sasquatch was the same thing. 
in the Bigfoot of California must be the same thing as well. Exactly, exactly. And that's and, that's sort of like the integral point of cryptozoology that, that you try to, or you do blow up in the book, and that's that the popular misconception for many people who have sort of a peripheral interest in cryptozoology seem to think that the, you know, they say outright that the Yeti is the Bigfoot and the Bigfoot is the Sasquatch and the Sasquatch is the Yowie and the Yowie is the Almas and the Almas is this and it's all the same thing. But what you're saying in the book is that no, we're not dealing with the same thing. We're dealing with a whole host of possible different creatures. Very different things and the history bears that out. There is no talk of the giant cone-headed ape-man amongst the Indians. There is no image of that in all their artwork. Their artwork is actually very explicit. And that's where Bigfooters made the mistake again. They went to Indian artwork. The, John Green had a great knack, a very laudable knack, of digging up old newspaper articles and finding wonderful research about uh, you know, Paul Kane's journal of 1847 talking about the Skookum, which were, were around Mount St. Helens in Washington State about the Oma of, Nor of Northern California, which were thought, well, this must be the truth behind Bigfoot. That's what Bigfoot oh, must be an Oma, and an Oma is a Sasquatch, and a Skookum is a Sasquatch, and they're all one and the same thing, and they're scientifically Gigantopithecus, which they try to make it sound very, you know, that's the scientific point of view. Well, no, it's what they try and make look scientific. But the truth is the Indian artwork does not identify the Yeti at all, and neither do the footprints. I mean, there is a stark difference between the Yeti footprint as established by Shipton and the Yeti expedition. The Sasquatch footprint is radically different from that. It cannot even be a variation of the same species. It is an entirely different entity. And the Bigfoot, as we know Bigfoot, the Bluff Creek Bigfoot, basically has been exposed since then. We can say it was Ray Wallace. It was Jerry Crew's loss. Jerry Crew found these footprints. It was his boss and his brother, Ray and Wilbur. And and that's what, you know, so people think Bigfoot has been exposed because Ray Wallace, in, in the obituary confession, his family confessed he was the one who made these footprints at Bluff Creek. Well, that muddled everything, but that did not destroy Bigfoot. That just destroyed a very garish incarnation that rode piggyback on the legends of the Oma and the Skookum and the Sasquatch. Right, right. But the point you make in the book, though, is that that piggyback was just immensely detrimental to the entire concept of well, yes, trying to understand and find this thing. Yes, what that is the popular image that Big, Bigfoot is this conehead and he's, he's Bluff Creek is his shrine. And this has given us the image of the Sasquatch, this, the thing from the Patterson film. The, the yeti with the cone head and the, the female breasts walking away from the camera. And uh, that, is, that is what destroyed the whole image. Finally, by that time, the pedigree of Bigfoot was established by the early 70s, thanks to everything at Bluff Creek, to the Bigfooters' terrible misconceptions, and then to the Patterson film, which electrified the world. And that gave us Bigfoot. That is the Bigfoot of today. And he's gotten bigger. He's eight, nine feet tall. He's all over the world now, although the Indians said the last surviving remnant of the Sasquatch were in their district. Uh, the Indians, uh, to Paul Kane in 1847, said Mount St. Helens was the remaining abode of the Skookum, a cannibal, uh, what is it? They clarified it by enormous redundancy, the race of beings of a different species. Yeah, I love that. And uh, that's the only way Paul Kane could clarify their regard for the Skookum. 
And so there, there's the, there's the problem: is that one, this enormous folklore has built up and has completely obscured the idea of two tribes of Sasquatch men, one of which indeed could have been human, but we really don't have footprints to indicate that. We have only one footprint of what we can call the Sasquatch, and that would be the Ruby Creek footprint, mm-hmm. and that is clearly belonging to something com- unheard of. That footprint is is amazing. That long monkey-like footprint, but no offset toe-thumb. This is not any kind of ape foot. These are five toes almost even across. It's not like a human foot at all. Let's tackle, oh, not just big, it's huge, huge piece of the, uh, the cryptozoology world in this Americanized Bigfoot that you outright say is fake, and that's the Patterson-Gimlin film. Obviously, you're not the first person to say it's fake, but what makes you say this? I found a lot of interesting stuff from the book about, you know, you sort of dug more into the people and what they were doing at the time, and that really uncovered a lot of uh, what looks like chicanery more than even what you can see in the film itself. Well, it is. It's very suspicious. Uh, I mean, logic does exist. When you're taught philosophy, as I studied philosophy as well at university, the very first things you're taught are logic, uh, natural logic, and how all logic rides upon this, and that in all logic, your conclusions must be supported by your premises. Certain actions will lead logically to other actions. And so if you examine the behavior of people in light of what they were saying, it just does not follow suit. Uh, The claims that uh, uh, Patterson shot this film on October 20, 1967, and then he drives, according to, you know, Rene DeHinden was all there afterward, a new Patterson, and this comes from his own account. He was very explicit in his book in 1973 with Don Hunter, entitled Sasquatch. And here in, in on October 20, supposedly, by their estimation, Patterson shot the film, drove all the way from Bluff Creek to Eureka, mailed it to his home in Yakima, Washington, alerted the newswires, the worldwide newswires, which were all tapped into the Humboldt Times in Eureka, listening to Bigfoot stories, and uh, then drove all the way back to Bluff Creek, went back to the sandbar, cast the, the prints and covered some to keep them careful, keep them preserved, narrowly avoided a huge rainstorm and mudslide on the way out, and that's what they told Rene DeHinden because they weren't expecting him to be in Willow Creek when they got there. He was in San Francisco, and they didn't know that. And it goes over the news wires, and he immediately drives up, and apparently Gimlin and Patterson are surprised to see him, and that's their story. Yeah, sounds like. You can't go to the sandbar because we just escaped a deluge. Yeah, it's like almost like he caught them in the midst of, 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 you know, the fakery. Yeah, and then this very improbable, illogical story comes up. You know, why would you alert the newswires when you don't know what kind of film you have? He even admitted that to Patterson. I don't know if I have anything that will stand up. And he admitted that rather to DeHinden, mm-hmm. and DeHinden reported that in his own book. And now, you know, why would you alert the newswires to that? <laughs> yeah. And they get to Yakima the next day. The film miraculously is already developed. And it just looks, you know, great. It is actually very well done. I believe it's a hoax, but it is very well done. And uh, it's it's just astounding that then nine days later, the only person who's able to get to the site nine days later is Bob Titmus. He drives all the way from Kitimat, 1,500 miles away. He gets out there, and he can follow everybody's tracks very easily, he said. He casts ten prints of this Bigfoot, which, again, has different feet. 
This, these are not the feet that Crewe found. These are not Ray Wallace's now famous hourglass prints. These aren't Yeti footprints. These aren't Sasquatch footprints from Ruby Creek. These are radically different. These are funny, enlarged human feet. And so then he gets out there, and apparently there was no deluge because that happened. That creek bed's going to rise up and, and swamp the sandbar. And so it's just there's too much fakery there, and why one has to talk about that is really you have to get this image of the cone-headed Yeti walking on its hind legs out of everybody's mind. Right. That's, that's essential before we divide up what we're looking for. You know, we are not looking for this. I'm not going out looking for this 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 guy and this hairy guy with these funny enlarged human feet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I had never really known too much about you know the history of Bigfootery, and you really sort of introduce a lot of very interesting characters. Uh, it sounds like quite a coterie of of, of you know competing agendas, competing motivations, um, you know competing beliefs. They all sort of seem to want to be the one to to bag this thing. At the same, yeah, for whatever for money for glory. Yeah, as to Hinden admitted, that was his whole motive: uh, glory and hard cash prizes. Uh, those who thought they were more of the scientific bent had some bizarre evolutionary theory that they probably thought this could prove. Uh, others just, you know, they they revel in the folklore and were trying to profit off the stories. Yeah, yeah. It almost, especially as as the book progresses, you know, and you get further into. The history of the Bigfootery, it feels like almost, too, that they'd been searching so long they couldn't give up. They couldn't give up on the ghost of this thing. Like, uh, And what's ironic is that they were looking for their own created monster, mm-hmm. and that's not what that's not what they should have been looking for. I mean, talk about the most minor comparative analysis. We'll look at the Yeti footprint from the Himalayas and the Sasquatch footprint from a Ruby Creek in British Columbia and say, listen, we don't have even the same thing. I mean, there's there's no, and then they had the William Rowe sighting, which is so fundamental, and that I mean, he really gives a very clear description of something six foot tall. That is not the Yeti. I mean, it does not have a cone head, and it has the same type of Ruby Creek footprint. He saw the foot. Yeah. What you know, so you have to ask, what kind of analytical ability were they dealing with if they could not see the difference? If they just wanted to ride piggyback on the fame of the Yeti. Instead of trying to clarify, we've got something very different here. It sounds like, uh, from what you say in the book, that they just completely disregard the J.W. Burns material. I, I don't think they knew what it was. I don't think John Green ever read J.W. Burns because he wrote in his introduction, Meet the Sasquatch, of his first book, which I enjoy. I mean, it, it is the, the Green's first venue on the track of the Sasquatch, which he self-published in 1968. He said that white man's impression were that these were considered to be uh, tall Indians with long hair on their head. That's what Harry Giant meant to them. And that's nothing you're going to get out of a J.W. Burns story. He was talking about ape-like men. Carry all over. Yeah. And so I don't think they'd ever read J.W. Burns. They just had the popular impression. They ran with it. They couldn't believe it was a giant primitive Indian. And so the, you know, only logical explanation was the very popular Yeti. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we have all this error. And then to justify this, uh, they went into the Indian artwork, which is really begins to give us the entities involved. And there's that that very ridiculed Ameranthropodus loisy. People say, what? 
Well, it's that picture that Francois Deloy took in 1920 in Venezuela, mm -hmm. of all places, of what appears to be a five-foot-tall anthropoid, but it looks just like a spider monkey. A spider monkey, which is a small, you know, at best they get three feet tall. They have a long prehensile tail. And, uh, you know, what's that? It's no big deal. That's nothing exciting. Well, Deloitte and his men said this thing was, these two of them, a male and a female, approached them by the Rio Catatumbo. And they were five feet tall. They walked on their hind legs. They had no tail. They picked up sticks. They brandished them. They were beating the bushes, they were freaking out in front of his party. He was there looking for petroleum signs. He was a geologist. And he, as the male stepped aside, he shot the female. The male was wounded and ran off, and they couldn't recover it, so they take the female back, proper on this petroleum crate, and take that picture. And he finally got out of the jungle with what was left of his party after three years of uh, searching. He lost most of his party. And he had this one picture left, and uh, he was mocked for it. His own story in uh, the London Illustrated, I believe, was not believed by most. And only one major French zoologist, Professor Georges Montanon, believed him and carefully studied the picture and Deloitte's report and said that Deloitte shot a real anthropoid. And so he named it after him. All American Thripodus Loise means is Mr. Loise, ape-like American. Yeah. And no one wanted to accept that. Sir Arthur Keith was venomous. He denounced Deloy. No one had seen an ape, if you will, or an anthropoid version of a known genus of monkey. He said that you can't see the tail in the picture because either Deloy shot it off or cut it off, and he's just, it's a hoax. Well, Montanal was careful to get an exact copy of the crate on which this anthropoid was set. And he measured 17 and three-quarter inches. His cousin was in the oil business. He got one, and he said this is clearly three and one-third times. The anthropoid is three and one-third times uh, taller than this crate. It must be around five feet tall. And Deloitte himself in his notes said it was five feet, one and inch, one inch and three-quarters tall. Wow. And no one would accept this. No one. It was just it's, it was an enormous row. Evolution could not explain this. This is not how it works. At that time, they believed anything bipedal was a missing link. How could this be a missing link? This is something closer to primitive monkeys. This is nowhere near us. This is this is a new world primate. Man's an old world primate. This is a bunch of rubbish. This is a hoax. No one logically could explain why a respected geologist would go deep into Venezuela to perpetuate a zoological hoax. There was nothing in it. Right, exactly. And so... It's been dismissed. It's been ridiculed. I have been, uh, in some ways, uh, people have expressed their shock that I'm saying that this five-foot-tall, oh, how to clean it up, <laughs> how to clean this up on radio. Go ahead and say whatever you want. This crap-flinging anthropoid, <laughs> that's what spider monkeys do. They will defecate in their hands. They'll throw the stuff at you. And these anthropoids, according to Deloitte, showed the same behavior. The, when they got into their big monkey fit, they did the same thing and threw it at him. And that was, you know, Merritt was all a Frenchman was going to take. And that's when he shot him. <laughs> and so that is not the zing of the legend. That When people speak about the subhuman, the missing link, our berry-eating buddy, Bigfoot, they don't picture a five-foot-tall anthropoid related to a known genus of monkey that behaves in the same 
primitive fashion. And yet you look at the Indian artwork and you begin to see what the Indians are talking about when it comes to Disonaqua. Disonaqua, as a name, is frequently raised in terms of proof of Bigfoot. This is the Indian proof of Bigfoot. John Green was the first. He took pictures of the Disonaqua totems, the legends of the, the nude cannibal tribe in the forest, the mask, uh, the, the bukwas, all these, you'll hear all these Indian names. This is all supposed to represent Bigfoot because it has ape-like appearances. Well, if you look at the Indian artwork, you'll see that the Indian artwork very accurately shows very unique features to spider monkeys and the loisy, and that is the bony ridge. Most apes just have this huge jutting brow over their eyes. Well, spider monkeys and the loisy have the brow go all around and circle their entire eye, so that looks like it's a round circle of bone around the eye. Yeah. And you will see that in the masks and totems of the Disonaqua. You will see the long arms in a, in a bodysuit and the huge hands. And then looking at these old newspaper articles, which some of the Bigfooters did ferret out to their credit, you see that there was a report in 1869 in California near Pacheco Pass, close to where I grew up at Gilroy, where the hunter came across two five-foot-tall, such as he calls them, what is it? He didn't know what they were, but they were male and female. And he describes them as, as you know, similar to what we would call the, the loisy now. And then you see the report of M.S. Trimble way over in the St. Louis Democrat in, in 1870 as well of a creature that it matches. And you then look at Montanon's work, and he was uncovering all this evidence in South America from the time, what, of Piedro, Piedro de Leon that something five foot tall, some hairy man-beast was known to be in the forest, and they travel in male-female pairs, and they're noted for their howling and whistling. And the Disonaqua masks of the Pacific Northwest always picture Disonaqua with the mouth puckered, as though it is moaning or whistling. And it, the evidence just goes on and on to show right. that these five-foot-tall anthropoids did, in fact, migrate through Mayan lands. The Mayans have statues of them. And they came north through California into the Pacific Northwest. And I would say in, through other mountains, through the Rockies, and into Oklahoma that has reports of these, and into Arkansas where the Falk monster was famous, mm-hmm. and, and, or the skunk ape uh, of Florida, and they follow the mountains northward. And that is, a, that is so far the major evidence behind Indian artwork. I should say Indian artwork is the major evidence proving that Deloitte was not a crank. He shot a disonaqua. He shot the genuine article and propped it on a crate. And we've had a picture this whole time, and this picture is matched by Indian artwork. Right. This is not the Bigfoot of legend. This is not the eight, nine-foot-tall Gigantopithecus. It's a five-foot-tall crap-flinging ape. Right. And by extension, it is one of the two tribes described by the Native Canadians to J.W. Burns. Is that accurate? One wonders. Okay. One, I'm not sure because, you know, the Indians didn't mix Disonaqua and the Sasquatch men. We did. Ah, okay. We, white men, said this is proof of, of Bigfoot. This is proof of Sasquatch. The Indians didn't do that. They said this is Disonaqua, and they accurately... Oh, so it's like a whole that. different entity to them. Yes, when the Indians spoke of Sasquatch, that's what I have to dissect in there. When the Indians spoke of Sasquatch, they meant people. They meant something so human, they thought it was people, or they meant people. Okay, Very hairy, animalistic people. So I excise in my chapter, Odd Anthropoid Out. That's why I call it that. We get rid of Disonaqua now. 
we get rid of Amerenthropus loisi, we can identify it. It's not Bigfoot. It's not Sasquatch. This is something totally different. This was our mistake. Ah, uh, okay. And the same with the skookum. I, I believe the skookum is another Native American anthropoid. And there's evidence that a lot of the Bigfoot reports, you know, the classic stuff of the 19th century, is describing something that is, is given very clear detail that matches yet another South American primate. And so if the Loisy is real, if there are anthropoids, apes if you must, because these are very different from old world apes, these have tall, these have long legs, because monkeys, some monkeys too, have very long hind legs. And so if you had a bipedal anthropoid very close related to uh, two monkeys, it's not surprising it would have more of a human form. It would could migrate further, and it could step over a fence. Uh, it would be far more alarming to see something like that than these short little African waddlers with <laughs> yeah. short legs. Yeah. No one's really going to be too scared of a chimp. Exactly. There, there's evidence that the skookum and the Disonaqua are two Native American anthropoids. They are not Old World missing links. They are not Yeti. They are truly ours, and the skookum apparently does get to be six and seven feet tall, something like the legend, and is a hell of a lot more nastier than the than the Loisy ever could be. And that would be what was still living around Mount St. Helens in 1924 during the famous Ape Canyon case. Mm-hmm. The miners described the similar features as an old 1889 Happy Camp report that this has prominent ears that stick out. It has a beard. It has a bulldog's head. A bulldog's head. It does not have a cone head or a rounded head. A bulldog's head, meaning the the low vaulted head with the cleft in the middle. Yeah. Which is exactly what the howler monkey has. And skookum, we say it's Sasquatch as well. I say it isn't. But what is Sasquatch's famous attribute? That it howls, so so that's known for its eerie howling. The Indians even said Sasquatch man is known for its eerie howling. And so there's so much convolution that that's why I have to go through and dissect so much until we finally boil it down to the actual two Sasquatch men. The two Sasquatch men tribes are not Skookum. They're not Amerenthropus Loisy. They're not the Sonaqua. They're not what's reflected in the artwork. There is other artwork that shows wild human beings as Bukwas, which is the name for the wild man. And then there are Bukwas masks, which show some kind of quasi-ape. Yeah. And here we finally get down to the two Sasquatch tribes, something that is human and something that is so human-like it can pass for a human to people. Fascinating stuff. I'm telling you, like I said, this blew my mind when I read this because it was like, what? you know, this is completely the antithesis of what, you know, mainstream America thinks about what the Bigfoot is nowadays. So it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's unfortunate that I have to go after, you know, the popular concept of Bigfoot so much, but that is really until that is out of our our mind, we cannot see, you know, we cannot interpret the Indian artwork. We cannot interpret all those famous stone heads Othniel Marsh discovered. They show signs of the Loisy as well, the ocular area around the eye. We have to get rid of this old world yeti. Gigantopithecus walking in America because it, it's, it does not exist. The Indians did not speak of something eight feet tall. They spoke of something six to six and a half feet tall, but twice the thickness of an ordinary man, and it is very human-like, and something eight feet tall with a pointed cone head, I'm sorry, is not human-like. <laughs> exactly. No one is going to mistake that for a human. Right, exactly. What you're essentially saying, I guess, in, in the book, too, is that you're saying the Loisy's one thing, 
the skookums another, and then by extension, also in the book you talk about the almas, and so we're talking about, you know, yet another different anthropology. Yeah. Yeah, which is exclusively old world. This is not the, the Loisy and the Skookum. My contention would be that we could call it a spider ape and a howler ape. But those are anthropoids that are related to these uh, genus of monkey, South American monkey. Mm -hmm. And we go then to the old world to talk about the almas because it's about the Yeti as well. The Yeti, I, I believe, probably could be Gigantopithecus. There were... Uh, even Carlton Kuhn, who was Harvard's big anthropologist, thought that the Yeti was real and this footprint was Gigantopithecus, which meant a big deal back then, because Gigantopithecus back then was believed to be bipedal. It was believed to be lateral evolution, which was very popular to talk about back then. It's yeah. not, not related to us. It's from another simian or a simian way back, but it's a lateral line. And that later was quashed by too much controversy so that no one talked about lateral evolution. But back then, that was a big deal. That Gigantopithecus, though not a missing link, is a missing link of something else. It is proof. It's a benchmark of evolution. So it was a big deal. When anybody said Gigantopithecus, they were talking about some form of missing link. And that's why the Yeti was so popular. That's why you would get Oxford... Uh, anthropologist talking about it, or Harvard anthropologist. Right. So Yeti is quite real, and it might be Gigantopithecus, but, you know, we have to say, listen, that's not Bigfoot, that's not Sasquatch. Right. right. And apparently it's not the Almas. The Almas sounds conspicuously like a rhesus monkey. It sounds like another type of anthropoid. It's got pointed ears. I mean, that is so much attested to by all the Russian studies. The Russians had very credible people like uh, Vasily Kokolov looking into it, and uh, way back when, long before I was 1910, 1907, a couple of very wonderful Mongolian naturalists, uh, Z. Jamsharano and then J.R. Rinchen, and uh, the description of the Almas is always the same. It's about five feet tall, too. Pointed ears, walks on its hind legs. It's hunched. It has a strange foot, too, with a a big toe that's shorter and offset, so it sounds strangely like an ape foot mm -hmm. right there. And apparently there has been a cast taken of this foot in the McNeely-Cronin expedition 1972 in the Himalayas as well of a bipedal primate, ostensibly, and that uh, that cast they have just is too, too much like what was being described yeah. by all these Russian scientists. And so this is something very different. And although the Bigfooters, to Hinden especially, insisted that the Almas, you know, this is this is a Yeti, this is Bigfoot, this is Sasquatch, even though the Almas has pointed ears, it's only five feet tall, they didn't seem to want to accept more than one entity. Yeah. And they didn't want to accept that it could just be an animal. It had to be. It had to be something far more exciting. It had to be a missing link. Right. right. And the Russian in charge of all this, Dr. Boris Porshnev, of the Academy of Sciences, he was a historian. He's the one who dug up all this history and all this data to collate. He did this marvelous job. But because the idea of a Neanderthal in the 50s in our days of innocent imagineering <laughs> was this, uh, you know, they carried a club. They were hairy type of odd and Cro-Magnon and... They carried women off by the tuft of the hair, and since these, the gradualism was so predominant that, you know, missing links look like, you know, eight men and, and all that kind of stuff, if we have people describing bipedal 
apes, bipedal primates, well, they have to be missing links, and therefore it's, he was sure they were Neanderthals. And that was just, it's really, you know, out of left field, really, uh, for the Almas. But uh, even though the Russians had far more evidence than we have of humans involved, uh, even the case of a captured wild human, uh, Porshnev did the same thing. He believed everything. Almas, the the people of the Caucasus, the wild man that a Russian colonel examined in 1941, who was key to helping the famous uh, Soviet Soman Commission, which Porshnev was the head of. They lumped, they did the same thing. They lumped everything together and called it an Almas. Yeah. And we did the same thing, except we excluded humans. Porshnev said these were all subhumans. The Almas, the wild men, the Yeti, uh, all the, the reports of Mulan and Chichuna, which were wild men in Siberia, they're all Neanderthal. And so you can imagine Rene de Hinden coming back from personally interviewing him in 1972, believing these were all the same that we have here. <laughs> so that indeed Bigfoot is now a Neanderthal, even though, I'm sorry, Neanderthals never had a tall cone head, nor were they eight feet tall. You know, everything was just so mixed and maxed and convoluted. Yeah, that's what I got out of the book, really. It's like there's a lot of sort of like pulling at these threads to try and figure out exactly what's really going on here because everything gets so confabulated. It is. I mean, that, that's why you, you have to probe into the world of, of hairy hominids, which is what it's, you know, jokingly called. But that, that's what this comes down to is that the people who did look into this were not the establishment. They were not uh, worried about that much academic oversight. And so I think any credible, uh, real credible anthropologist at the time would have said, listen, you've got more than one thing. If these are real, you've got way more than one thing involved here. Yeah. This thing with the pointed ears uh, and the thin chest around Mongolia and so forth, this is not some, some Neanderthal. That's not what they look like. We have their skeletons. We know that. Uh, and then the idea of this eight, nine-foot-tall thing in America, and then this Yeti, the Yeti that is so famous for its tall, pointed head. I mean, that's not a Neanderthal either. What is so numbing is how the Bigfooters ran with all this and said it is all one and the same thing. They morphed it into the giant eight, nine-feet-tall because the Indians call it a giant, and, and that's our image of Bigfoot. Yeah. And that is our explanation. Worse, our explanation for Bigfoot is that <laughs> it's everything, basically. It's it's the Gigantopithecus, it's Neanderthal, it's it's whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And people are lost. The, the, the masks the Indians have of the Bukwas that clearly show wild human beings with very different features than Indians, than whites, uh, than Negroes, than anything the Indians would have had contact with. These are very different human beings. Uh, Thick-lipped... Uh, Strange features, sunken eyes, high cheekbones, exactly as the Russians described that captured wild uh, woman uh, in the Caucasus in the 19th century, which they did believe was a Neanderthal. Yeah, tell that story, because I've, I've heard it in other places before, but I don't think we've ever had anybody share this tale on the show before. The, the I'd famous, love for people to hear it. The famous story of Zana. That's the name she was given. Dr. Porshniff did an incredibly reputable research on this because that was his king believing and everything was a Neanderthal. And so they heard about this wild woman who had uh, lived in the Caucasus in the 1860s or 70s. 
she was captured in what was only called an age-old method. She was finally subdued, which means they beat her pretty good and gagged her mouth. She was so wild. They brought her to the reigning prince of that area. He kept her for a while as an oddity. He gifted her to another vassal. And then it basically went to someone named Ganaba, who took her and still had to pen her up and his own farm in the Caucasus Mountains, which is in the, what was then the Soviet Union. Uh, well, what became the Soviet Union after the revolution in 1917. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, finally she was tamed, possibly after a lot of beatings. She was named Zana, which means dark or negroid in that language. And uh, she was described as a very dark-skinned, thick lips. She had long hair on her head, like a almost like a Gibson on top. It was very, very thick, like a cap, and it went all the way down her back to her lower back. Uh, she was found completely naked, hairy all over, black reddish hair, fiery type of eyes, which could be an exaggeration, of course. But she had no human expression. She was just bestial and scared everybody when she was taken into town by Ganaba. Dogs couldn't even stand her, and she hated dogs. And so she could never learn any words. She did primitive chores about the house, about the farm, I should say. She never could be indoors. She could not handle warm rooms. She slept outside and didn't like clothes. And so it sounds like we're almost talking about an animal. Yeah. And that's what we'd probably denounce this as mostly myth and folklore, uh, or some confusion, primitive people that didn't understand what an ape was or something. We all know Dr. Porchneff decided to journey there in the late 1950s or early 1960s, I believe, and investigate this for himself. He wanted to find her grave, believing if he found the bones, he could prove she was a Neanderthal. Yeah. A living Neanderthal. He comes across the village. He talks to people who still remembered her and some who were still at her funeral were still alive, and uh, he got the description I gave to you. And then he went to a nearby village, and uh, amazingly, he was told the story that she actually had half-breed children, as they call it, half-breed children. Uh, she apparently wasn't too ugly for some of the more desperate guys in the village. <laughs> but she did conceive children. She went to the river to wash them off and drown them in the process. And so the, the village intervened and saved subsequent children. Mm -hmm. And so she did have four children, and Porchniff went, and he got to meet a couple of her grandchildren. One, Shalakula. He was struck by the appearance that he had more of a, a Negroid appearance, but straight hair, thicker lips, thick set. He could pick up a chair with a person sitting in the chair, and he could pick up the chair by the, the leg with his teeth. Wow. He had such strong neck muscles, he could just bite onto the chair leg and pick it up with a person sitting in it, which is enormous strength. And Neanderthals were, of course, their major difference from us was that they have thicker bones than any of us ever had, than any of the strongest weightlifter of today. The Neanderthals simply had really thick bones. And so he was doubly sure that he saw the product of inbreeding between us and Neanderthals. And so that was the Snowman Commission point of view all the way to the end, until he died, until Porchniff died. And then those that followed in his footsteps, like uh, Jean Josephna Kaufman, who became very well known. She was one of the original members of the commission. And that's why they believed every Almas was this and was a Neanderthal.
They did not divide between the giggling little pointed-eared primate that Kokloff talked about, called the Almas, or Almista, and what they clearly saw evidence having once existed, which was a very wild and unusual type of human being, not a delinquent of our own kind. Zana was obviously something very different. Shalakula, her grandson, was proof of a very different type of human being. All right. And uh, that's, uh, that's why, you know, the Russians had the evidence there for people. And so they, with that evidence, and maybe Zana was indeed a Neanderthal, but they took that and they obliterated the whole reality of the Almas, of the pointed ear, unusual primate, this anthropoid, more like a monkey right. than an ape. Again, we did the, we did the reverse. We took yeah. all this evidence in Indian artwork for an anthropoid. <laughs> yeah. And we obliterated the Indian stories in the Indian artwork of humans, of the same kind of humans. Zana and this mask that's in a museum in Washington, D.C. are almost the same description. And again, it goes back to this multitude of creatures, and here one of them being human of some yes. kind. A very wild human. Right. A very hairy, wild, thick-set, strong, powerful human, which does match Neanderthals. Exactly. It's it, it's it's unbelievable stuff. I mean, it, it's amazing how far astray that it seems mainstream Bigfoot, Sasquatch, you know, Yeti research is gone. That's that's what strikes me as I as I read the book. It, it, well, it is amazing, and that's why I try to highlight the footprints. Here's what we have. Right. We even have a footprint that Gene Kaufman found in 1981 in the Caucasus in the land of Zana, in the traditional land of Zana, and that wild man they found in 1941 who's described it like something out of Rice Burroughs' A Land That Time Forgot. You know, long hair on the head and on the chest and on the shoulders, something you'd think Hollywood made up, but this was a genuine thick-set six-foot-tall wild man that uh, this military colonel could not explain. And they could not, they had to keep it in a, a nice room because he could not handle any kind of warm room. And here's here's his footprint. They find out in the same land of Dagestan and the Caucasus, and it is a footprint that is remarkably similar to those found in ancient caves that we say are Neanderthals. And again, it's not a Yeti footprint. It's not a Sasquatch footprint. It's not a Bigfoot footprint. And yet it does substantiate people in a very certain, consistent type of people. And the same type of footprint was seen melted out by Charles Stoner, who was the deputy lead of the famous Yeti expedition in the Himalayas in 1954, the Daily Mail expedition. And there's a picture in his book, The Sherpa and the Snowman, which looks like it is the same type of footprint, just melted out a bit in the snow. And then we go back, and, and these mountain climbers who talk about the abominable snowman, the Mito Kongmi, which is what abominable snowman means is in the original language. And every time Mito Kongmi was said, they were speaking about mountain men, as H.W. Tillman, who was a very famous English explorer, wrote in his own book, which regenerated all this interest in Britain in 1948 in the abominable snowman. He said they were mountain men. They were light-skinned with long hair on their heads, chest and shoulders, just as the colonel, the Russian colonel described in 1941 in faraway Dagestan. And we said Yeti and Abominable Snowman are the same, and apparently the same mistake was made that Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas were people. The Sherpas insisted they were people. They described them, and it wasn't the Yeti. The Yeti was something totally different to them. That was the cone-headed ape. Yeah, it's. I'm just. It does. It gets very convoluted, but the the underlying theme is we've obliterated 
the Germans by by concentrating on our own folklore. Abominable Snowman and the Yeti sounded so fantastic that we just kept the British image of this albino uh, cone-headed primate with its hands outstretched, ready to grab onto us. And we forgot that the Sherpas were clearly speaking about people when they saw this funny human print. That's when they said, Mito Kongmi, Abominable Snowman. Yeah. But when they said, when they were being talked about an animal, then they said Yeti. Mite, Mite Yeti. Man-like thing, Yeti, rock dweller. Totally different thing. And yet, once again, all, all sort of thrown into the same yes, room. and then cleaned up when it became so popular, cleaned up as Gigantopithecus. Why? Because we have these fossilized teeth that are huge, primate teeth. We have a fossilized jaw from the Silovac Hills of India. That's a primate jaw. Had to belong to something. And so we say, well, that's what was dubbed Gigantopithecus. That's all there was. And so we've just reconstructed it into Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Almas, you name it. It's all one thing now, and that's all Gigantopithecus, and that is so false. Exactly. Well, I thought it was interesting that you say that we have had no good sightings, I presume in America. I'd have to go back and check, but uh, since 1980. Yes, I would have to say so, not really. I mean, I followed reports, but a really good, clear sighting like that. See, I'm taking that from John Green as well, who is sifting all this stuff. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Because, frankly, I don't think as many people, after the get back to nature a decade, are even out there looking around. And if they are, they're looking for this thing that doesn't exist. Yeah. See, that that's, that's the whole thing. People are going to say, well, how many entities do you say exist around the world? And why hasn't one been captured? And, well, right. we can say, wait a minute, you know, we've got this picture of a dead one, of a Tassonaqua. We just refuse to believe it. That's a Maranthropodus loisi. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Indian artwork showing that they were talking with a very unusual people that matched the descriptions the Russians have of a woman who was captured in the 1880s or 90s in, on the, in the Caucasus Mountains. We have reports of Almas being captured by the locals, by the Kyrgyz, and maybe we didn't want to believe them. We have uh, evidence that the monks made those famous skull caps in the monasteries in uh, Tibet or Nepal from an actual yeti that they saw that was killed once. There are reports of an almas hide in a temple in Tibet. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous to say that these have not been captured or explained in very clear histories of the local people. What we have never captured or filmed or truly uh, had a credible witness see is the cone-headed giant of modern legend, because that does not exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we have we have Indian artwork showing Sasquatch men. We have Indian artwork showing Dasonaqua. We have Indian artwork showing this unusual Abuquatis wild man that looks like an ape snarling its teeth, and yet we have the Buquas where they're clearly people. It's interesting to to see how far astray, you know, the American scene is in a way. that's I'm still struck by that the more I talk to you, because especially how, you know, you point out in the book that this has been going on for like 50 years and it kept getting muddled, and a lot of the main, the, like the biggest quote-unquote evidence 
for American Bigfoot is the Patterson film, which you say is bogus, and yes. the Cripple Foot, which you say is bogus, and, you know, a lot of the flap surrounding uh, Tom Slick's p and and how that all got started, which sounds like you're, you know, implying that it was sort of all inspired by Ray Wallace and his, and his hijinks. Oh, absolutely, Ray, uh, Ray at Bluff Creek, the, uh, he was the inspiration for all that, all of his shenanigans with his brother, because that's where uh, P&E, Pacific Northwest or Northwestern Pacific, it has many names, was, uh, was started. Slick thought that, you know, the news report says Slick thinks Bigfoot can of abominable snowman, that said everything. He <laughs> thought he had a Yeti right there because he had been looking for the Yeti in the Himalayas. And so he brought his same crew in. And added some of these American woodsmen like Bob Titmus, Renee DeHinden, and John Green, who were very interested. And they concentrated right in the area of Bluff Creek. They were looking for the owner of those funny enlarged human feet that we now know belonged to Ray Wallace because his nephew Dale showed the exact feet to the world after his death in 2003. And this enormous uh, hail of, of publicity because the the, the uh, obituary said Bigfoot is dead. And they went into it, and he showed the footprints. And if you look at Green's old books, I'm telling you, those are those are the footprints. The, the, the wooden feet that Dale Lee Wallace showed the world are the exact same footprints that are contained in Green's original books, and these are the ones touted as Bigfoot. And obviously, you know, those revelations in 2002, they were pretty vehemently denied by, you Oh, know. my gosh, yes. <laughs> they You had... Ardent Bigfooters, uh, when you get into almost the religious element of Bigfoot, they they deeply believe in the in the popular the popular image. You know, you cannot. I think I wrote in the book, it's like a religion within. You cannot deny a certain vignette that has become very famous. You know, the Albert Osman stories, the, the Ape Canyon, the Patterson film encounters, the Bluff Creek encounters in 1958 that started it all. Cripplefoot. These are all within. The public persona, the folklore of Bigfoot, it's like a religion. If you say you believe in Bigfoot, if you say you believe in Sasquatch, but you don't believe in one of these crucial vignettes, you're a heretic, and I've been called that. It's like saying I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe the water in the wine episode. You're a heretic. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty... And, and, there's, and that element will do anything to defend the cone-headed giant of modern folklore. It's amazing. It's it's like I said, it's really shook up my whole understanding of what the hell's been going on here in, in the in the world of Bigfoot cuz I I just thought that this was just an elusive creature here, but <laughs> now I'm finding out that all the people who've been looking for the elusive creature were, you know, chasing the wrong thing. Yeah, they're they're chasing their own phantasm, their own creation because they didn't bother to look at at two different, very different footprints. I mean, yet he was just too popular. Bigfoot could not have gotten, or Sasquatch by effect, the publicity at the time from the media are taken seriously unless someone said this is the same thing. People don't understand. Yeti is so obscured today because Bigfoot became so popular. Yeah. But Yeti was just this enormous, famous thing of the 1950s. 50s, the, the rage was with cavemen and missing links and the old black and white movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon talking about all this impossible evolutionary theory that Darwin wouldn't even touch <laughs> in his day and all the stuff they thought is you know was science that Bigfoot was just so that Yeti rather was just the idea of a caveman the idea of a missing link was so phenomenally popular and to actually be able to say it was to correlate it with 
bones with Gigantopithecus. Vladimir Chernyevsky, an anthropologist, was the first to do that, and, and Bernard Huvelmans, who became famous as the father of cryptozoology, endorsed all this as well. It was just so, so popular to say this is a missing link Gigantopithecus. It's a seven, eight-foot-tall primate with a cone head. If anybody had tried to inject, they listen, we're talking about more than one entity. We're talking about people. And we're talking about a primate, or we're, we're talking about a Native American primate, something from South America. They, they wouldn't have had a voice. Right. They would not have had a market. In order for Bigfoot and Sasquatch to survive, the Bigfooters basically had to say, this is Yeti. There was once a great American named George Henderson. He met a woodland ape or Sasquatch, and despite its dangerous message of environmentalism, became his friend. But when the time came to do the hard thing and send it back into the forest where it belonged, and birds could perch on its shoulder because it was gentle, George Henderson summoned the strength, and by God, he did it. Did it hurt? You bet it hurt. Like a bastard. But he did it because it was the right thing to do. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Is that Harry and the Hendersons? You've seen it. This is my life, Jack. What makes your book, I thought, so revolutionary, again, to me, was just that you're not saying it has to be one or the other of the human or the primate. You're saying that, that we're talking about two different things and beyond that, three or four or five, who knows, how many different bipedal creatures plus a human, you know, a feral yeah. human. What, what, is, what is essential is, is, as I say, to to excise out of it the loisy, to excise out of it the, the evidence for apes in America is not evidence for Yeti. It's not evidence for Old World missing links or anything like that. It's it's our own. These are native. They're, they're our own. They belong to us. The Skookum, the Desonaqua, they're our own primates. To get at the actual core of what is Sasquatch, you have to get rid of all this other stuff. You have to comb it out and get it out of the way because Sasquatch was so human to the Indians that they believed they were two tribes of humans. And my contention is, of course, one was and might still be if they're around somewhere. The other is the big controversy that it is a primate so close to humanity in proportion that it can be confused for people by, by many. I mean, these were always called animal humans in the old journals. Whites or Indians alike, it didn't matter. They were called animal humans. They were so human-like. Right, and all the, all the sightings, presumably, are fleeting of those creatures. Because they move so swiftly. They move so quickly. Right. And, uh, I mean, they, that one 1884 sighting in Oregon, they thought this was a hunter that was has been missing for four years, John McIntyre. It was so human. They saw this, this hairy man eating a killed deer raw. There's that old uh, report in the London Times, which I've always been suspicious about, but it appears to be very legitimate, of a, a hairy wild man about seven feet tall that they caught in Manitoba and took to France. And it was withdrawn. It behaved in the same way that Colonel Carpathian described that uh, man that they found in Dagestan and faraway Caucasus. Yeah. Again, so there, there are similarities. We are, we're dealing, when it comes to the people, mm -hmm. we are seen to be dealing with the same type of people spread out. Right. And that they apparently, you know, existed, and we refused to believe the Indians. We simply would not listen to them when they said, listen, some of these guys can talk, and they resist civilization, 
and uh, the Indian artwork and all these various journals from the 18th century on and Russian studies tell us there are people. And they're not missing links. They're people. Right. And, and we overlook that. Strange. For the, for the giant. To imagine a race of, you know... <laughs> Well, variations there are now being far more understood. We don't have to go into all the anthropology and all yeah. the genetics, but uh, no, no one in the West, uh, any anthropologist in Anglo-American uh, science, would be incensed if someone said Neanderthals were not people. They're humans. There are a few in Europe that hold out saying, well, they're very different. They're lateral evolution. There are some Russians who might say they're they're not they're not really us, but. That would be anathema in, in Anglo-American science. Listen, these are human beings. I don't think a lot of people know that uh, Homo what was called Homo erectus, the first walking man. Mm-hmm. Well, that's bit the dust now, too. They said, whoops, you know, the University of Connecticut, the man there, Dr. Lachlan, was examining the skulls between these and living people of the Inuit. And they're so close. He said, basically, it seems, you know, that Homo erectus, they're just... They're just variation of us. They're just people. Right. We have the we have the skulls. We have the bones of people who are dead, who are buried in, in sediment and preserved as fossils. And these are not missing links. These aren't ape men. These are these are people who are still living. Well, you say that you know no, we haven't really gotten to the bottom, let's say, of the North American one. Uh, you know, because no one's really looking for the right thing. But I mean, what exactly? What? How would that really change? I guess you could say you know the pursuit of the North American Sasquatch. Well, I think if we, I think we had a better chance of finding it if we realized we were looking for people. Uh, I think you know it would be an enormous raspberry if, if people finally understood if they read my book and understood what how the false image developed. You can then see clearly something was behind it. Right. I mean, the Bigfooters screwed up, but they weren't making this up. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, and I, I do believe there's another tribe uh, that uh, there maybe they're still around, and I do believe the other primate, the other, if we can say these are the two true Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. That's not Skookum. That's not the Sonoquah. They're gone. We're, we got them out of the way. That the other one would be an old world primate that did migrate over, according to the most popular theories, because as I go into in the book into Myra Shackley's studies. Uh, from her book Wild Men and her research over there and some of the Russian research, they seem to have the same footprint for uh, the Dawn Man, he's called, or the Tarek of Siberia, has seems to be the same foot as the Ruby Creek print, which is a humanoid type of foot. Uh, and it's described the same way, six to six and a half feet tall. Myra Shackley clarifies for us all that's the same with the peoples there. They're very short, so they think that's giant. It all ties together, and they're usually seen in October and September and fall months, which is the same for Sasquatch. And so I would have to say that the two Sasquatch tribes, one are people, and the other is this old world type of primate. Right. But it's not the it's not the Lousy or the Almas. We're talking about you know a, a, no, almost this, a whole this, different this subset is the true of mystery. Yeah. yeah, this is the one that we can't get a handle on. Except <laughs> it has an unusually small head and it has very long legs. It can step over that forty-eight uh, inch CPR fence, and that is the one. You know, it may sound unusual to say why I ended my book the way I did, but I said we have to get rid of. This fake image, we have to get the enigma back. 
because the enigma is very true. The object of the search is false, but the enigma is very true. There was this enigma in the North Pacific Northwest for a couple of centuries about these hairy wild men. And we just, you know, you really can't figure out what they're talking about. But they're talking about something genuine. And we completely destroyed that with our belief that this is an eight, nine foot tall Gigantopithecus. That's not it. The enigma is we're not sure what one of these entities really is. Maybe they're both human. Maybe only one is. Maybe neither. Yeah. But uh, it, it seems that something very enigmatic is still behind what is the genuine Sasquatch, that there are people and something very human-like involved. Amazing, folks. I'm telling you, get this book and read it, because it'll just change your whole perspective on things. And you said... Before we start the interview, that you've gotten some flack here, I can imagine. <laughs> with, oh well, I, I have book. I have for years from that element that wants to believe in, in uh, you know, Gigantic the legend. Yeah, the legend is fun. I mean, I grew up with it. I believe deeply in the Patterson film. I enjoyed it as a kid. You know, I don't know how old you are. I'm probably older. I'm only 31, so. Okay, yes, I'm quite a bit older. <laughs> so I remember the Sunshine Classic stuff in the 70s. I remember my older cousins with the long hair and the, the hippie pants and all that and when Bigfoot was a big deal. And uh, this was, you know, you, you waited for these documentaries. That was the phenomena decade. They came on on uh, an era when there was only three networks and, you know, these terrible documentaries could get 50 million people watching them back in those days. And that's what we grew up with is this legend of the of the cone-headed ape-man, as you see in Mysterious Monsters, which David L. Wolper, of all people, produced that. He was one of the most credible documentaries there was. Peter Graves narrated that. Uh, Wolper uh, produced the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder. Oh, wow. He was a very credible filmmaker, and uh, and so this is what we grew up with, and it is a very fun legend. It is exclusively American. It is campfire Americana, but a lot of it is false. The object is false, uh, but the pursuit is very real. There is something that there is to find out there, and it can be between six and seven feet tall. Seven feet is huge if you see... That's your door frame in an average home. Yeah. If you saw something seven foot tall standing in your door frame, as thick as the door frame, that's a giant by anybody's standard of ogre. Mm-hmm. And so that you know the the enigma is out there. There is the the spirit of what was being broadcast in the 1970s is very true. It's just that the object is false. It is not this cone-headed ape man that uh, that Grover Krantz made very famous, and the Bigfooters made very famous. But, you know, when I tell them, when I tell people who deeply believe in that image, uh, they don't wish to believe. They don't want to believe the Loisy is real. I'm going to take flack over that because Yvonne Saunderson, who is a very well-known cryptozoologist and into the, all the phenomena stuff, mm-hmm. he condemned it uh, venomously as a hoax and, and all this kind of stuff. And I have my issues with him. I'm coming out with my another article in my, my Bigfoot Blatt online in which I talk about, you know, confessions of a former Saunderson junkie. I go through how much of his stuff I read and how much I discovered he was wrong. <laughs> uh, but th- there's there's a lot of people not going to like that their their image that the popular image is not true. And it's not their burying buddy. These can be very violent. They can they can, they're smart enough to get in through the roof and come after you, and they're known as a cannibal tribe. And that's what is the terror, something six feet tall that is not human, 
that is smart enough to come after you and doesn't mind what it does to you. Right, exactly. You point out how the just the, the presence of hands alone is the terrifying aspect of it. Well, it is. As I said, you know, I've, I've had raccoons get into my roof. I've had them rip through my shake. And, you know, that that's not terrorizing, but imagine coming home and seeing a six-foot-tall unknown primate sitting on your roof just picking those shakes out <laughs> and throwing them on the ground ready to come in. And if you're inside, they're coming to get you. And everybody laughed at the uh, Ape Canyon incident in which the miners uh, Fred Beck being one of them, the very famous Ape Canyon incident in 1924, said that's what they experienced. These had been stalking them for a while, the skookum, as they called them. And then uh, that night they attacked him. One shoved its hand through the chinking in the log cabin, grabbed an axe. I don't know if that much is true or or exaggerated, but they were certainly jumping all over the roof and trying to the doors, and they tried to get in there, and they were hurling rocks down on the cabin. And that's the, uh, you know, and they had four toes. That's the skookum have four toes. I never clarified that, but we do have a skookum print, and they were said to have four toes, and finally those were found by Canadian law enforcement out in the boondocks. And so we know that's not a Sasquatch. We know that's not human. Right. But it's very close to the Ruby Creek print. So that's how we can separate the skookum as something very different. And it sounds like, you know, extrapolating forward here or, you know, pushing forward to what may come in the future, you wonder almost if, let's say they capture one of these bipedal primates or however, anthropoids as you as you call them. They wouldn't even know to associate it with Bigfoot. Oh, really? No, because it's not the legend. Interesting. Okay. See, because that was, in a way, that was kind of what I was going for, but then I was concerned that they would take it and then just sort of push it onto everything and be like, okay, we got the Bigfoot. Oh, yes. This is... They would do that as well, yes. If they, <laughs> so it would be if both. They had my, if they would do both, one of all, if they, they captured this thing that was just was a five-foot-tall, looked like a spider monkey in Florida, let's say that's the skunk ape. Mm-hmm. Let's say that's what they capture, and they say, look what, we've got a new species, and someone will find it and say, oh, no, that's that was shot. Wow, this thing is real. Right. You know, Lloyd Deloy was not a hoaxer. He really shot this thing in 1920 in, in South America. Oh, it would be a, a big, fun deal, but no one would associate it with a lot of the... Indian artwork and evidence we use for Bigfoot. Right. We use to prove Bigfoot. But then if it got out, they'd say, oh, this is Bigfoot. The press loves irony. Oh, the reality behind the the eight-inch, the eight-foot-tall missing link is really this five-foot-tall crap-flinging monkey. Right. Joke's on us. Yeah. And (laughs) that was just, that's that's what they love. And so, yeah, it can work both ways, where they wouldn't even recognize this is the Tathonaqua. And then where they would say, this is everything. Yeah. Get it. There are no people. There's no skookum. There's nothing else. And that's, that's you know, where we found ourselves here as a result of this breakdown of, of research into, I guess, the American Bigfoot, you could say. I think we'd have to call the skookum the true Bigfoot because that does, it's my contention that is a very large okay. six to seven foot tall American primate akin to the howler monkey from descriptions of it. And so if we have to say Bigfoot is quintessentially American, that would appear to be the, the Native American primate that best fits. It's not the five-foot-tall crap-flinging monkey. That can never make a big, huge foot, but the skookum apparently does, and it's not the Sasquatch. And as I said, it's certainly not a human, and it does not appear to be what could possibly have left the Ruby Creek print. So we should probably call the skookum truly our Bigfoot. And by extension, again, on on what we were just talking about, about how they can do both, it seems like 
this problem will continue until there's the sort of the paradigm shift where they, you know, maybe they capture a skookum and they capture an almost, and, yeah. and eventually they're like, wait a minute now, let's let's stop. Because, you know, Giancasar was right. <laughs> well, my book's out there as, as at least some evidence, no matter what they say about me. My book is very illustrated, and uh, it shows with all these reports, these are all old journals that I go into. This is not just repeating hearsay and modern reports and all these subjective sightings. I'm, I'm collating and analyzing data. And so there's, there's evidence. I think no one will be able to deny at least that Amaranthriptus loisi is real, and that it is a large part of the Indian artwork in the Pacific Northwest, which, as I said, will fry some people. But I think East, that's going to be very clearly established from just an examination of the Indian artwork. Uh, what they do with the rest of it, what they do with the idea of people from other Indian artwork or that very elusive, true, long-footed Sasquatch from Ruby Creek, I don't know. But my book at least stands as evidence someone said this long before one of these is captured and then used for either too little or too much by the press. Yeah, but we need to keep looking for these different things. If you really sort of synthesize it all, it's like you're saying that, you know, I'm going to butcher the, the nomenclature here of this, but you're saying there's like a whole different species or, or, or something along the lines of sort of like, I always get right. apes and monkeys confused, but I'm saying like a bipedal primate, right? We're saying yeah. a whole bunch of different types I'm of... I'm saying there's a different type of primate. Yeah. Uh, that has species within it, which mm -hmm. is not necessarily how a zoologist would put it either, but it's it's best for, you know, getting across one's meaning that the Yeti, the Dawn Man, or Sasquatch, if they're one and the same, the Dawn Man and Sasquatch, I say, are one and the same. But if the Almas, the Yeti, uh, Sasquatch, Skookum, Loisy, we know is real, I'm very convinced of that because of the photo and the artwork. This is the Orang Pendek as well, right? Right, whatever that could be uh, from the descriptions of the small man of Sumatra. Uh, these are are not apes in the strict sense. They're not monkeys. They're not people, certainly. But they seem to be different species of a general type mm. of primate, and that type is something that is far more closely related to monkeys. They are anthropoids, so maybe a strict zoologist would say, listen, that makes them apes. But they are not the, the short-legged waddlers of Africa, or the orangutan that are not very impressive primates. These are long-legged guys that can move. They can move really quick, and that makes them look far more like human beings. Yeah. But they are not. They're not a missing link either. They are reconcilable with certain species of monkeys. So we have something that's a very separate type, a very separate class of primate. It's not man. It's not the great apes. It's not the monkeys. It's a whole different thing. Yeah. There's many species within it. This is some radical stuff, Gian. I'm telling you. I mean, this yes, is... it would be. <laughs> What's that? Yes, it would. That would. That's what would get me yelled at the most, saying that there's... People might accept that Neanderthals are still around. They can accept the Loisy. But that what the Loisy suggests is that there is an entire separate class of primates that is much more closely related to the monkeys, yet is more man-like in appearance than the apes. It's closer to us because they're bipedal. When I say closer, I don't mean evolutionary ways. I mean simple by appearance. They're bipedal. Right, right. They can haul it on their hind legs easier.
Well, it's, it's a hard, uh, it's a hard subject to talk about. <laughs> I hope people buy the book because I oh, I think they will better in the book. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to say this guy thinks there's something behind every bush, and that's not the case. No, not at all, not at all. No, I'm, I'm trying to drive the point home to people to try and get get the main idea to them that what, what the hell you're trying to explain to them. It's like. I can already hear them being frightened of <laughs> what you're telling them because it, it, it threatens the very fabric of what they believe. But at the same time, it makes so much more sense. It's 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 unbelievable. It, 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 like I said, I'm completely tongue-tied in a way trying to discuss this book because it's so different from anything I would have even considered or thought about. So kudos to you, dude, for having the, the balls to go out and write this and, and for doing the research because it's amazingly well-documented, a lot of the stuff in there. Thank you very much. We have to remember one thing, too. You know that uh, Japanese soldiers, there's a couple of incidents where they didn't uh, surrender on Okinawa yeah. and on Guam until 20, 30 years after. It was big news in the early 70s when, or the Philippines when they, they surrendered. It's not difficult, given all of Siberia and Pacific Northwest, for a bipedal primate, for an animal, to remain very elusive still. So we can have a few species that remain undiscovered. And it's really not uh, so phenomenal a statement as it might sound. We're talking about a huge amount of the earth. Yeah. In which these uh, are very adapted to living in. So (laughs) it's not like I'm talking about, you know, five, six different species in your small town. Exactly. Yeah. We're talking like all over the world here. Now, I mean, did you look at the Yowie at all, the Australian uh, version of, you know, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, etc.? No, I really didn't get into that. Uh, I'd had enough. I had enough. <laughs> oh. Because Yeti and Sasquatch are the basis out of all from what all this leads right. in the popular form. I had to start with those two and start dissecting from there. There's always room for a sequel, so. <laughs> um, now, let's say money was no object, okay? And we we talked about how, you know, they're, they're going about looking for this thing the wrong way. And they should be looking for, for people and or, you know, a bipedal primate. Mm-hmm. You know, let's say money was no object, and uh, you know, where, how would you even do that? Isn't that how is that any different than going to look for the the classic Bigfoot? I guess you could say, or the the misconceived. Very different. Okay, how? Very how? very different. One, the classic Bigfoot's really never been looked for since P and E. Okay. And they were looking for Ray Wallace, and they didn't know it. And uh, so, for the bipedal primate, my first goal is to try and, and nab one of the Americans one of the Native Americans, so a Loisy or a Skookum, if we believe the Skookum is based on the Howler, associated, I should say, related to the Howler. And so I have my own interdict theory, which does involve the, the mountain range Sierras going down through Arizona into Mexico, believing they are migrating up north from South America. Mm-hmm. And so I would interdict as certain areas, first establishing footprints that they are moving in a certain pattern and then find a certain area, which I won't state, yeah. along the uh, Bigfoot hunters are the most paranoid about talking about where they're working. <laughs> uh, so you actually have a place in mind, you mean? Yes, I, where it would be, the, that's my interdict theory, where try and get one, dart it as it's coming through a certain area of the Sierras, coming northward from South America. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, that would be for the primate. Right. That would, of course, be being able to maintain a base camp and trackers who can go out telling me, you know, how it's advancing through footprints. 
and make sure it's not past us. And for the humans, I I would have to say, you know, only up in Canada, only up in that legendary area of uh, the Nahani Valley, where Indians spoke of uh, headhunters who lived up there still, or deep into it. I don't think anybody's ever been to Morris Mountain, which is, by Indian legend, the actual Sasquaha Indians is the center of all Sasquatch uh, territory. That's what J.W. Burns made clear in his various writings, that the Sasquatch meet at Morris Mountain once a year and have their big ritual. Oh, boy. And no one's ever made it there. The first two guys to ever try were brothers, the Blakeney brothers of Sacramento here in California. This was in 1937, I believe. Uh, there was so much hoopla over the Harrison Hills incident of 1934 that got national news in Canada and the United States when the Indians insisted that the Sasquatch men were attacking Harrison Hills and some of the reservations. Uh, this was quite a big deal in British Columbia because whites and Indians alike were arming themselves. There was this eerie howling at night. Fences were being broken down. Livestock released to where uh, outsheds broken into. And so a whole bunch of vigilantes finally went on the search for the Sasquatch men, which, of course, the Indians were saying were giants and which white men were believing were eight, nine foot tall, and never found any, never brought them to book. And that's really, then in 1934, what made whites disbelieve the Indians, and the Indians got very sensitive. And But it got made so much news. It was in the Sacramento, it was in the Fresno Bee, it was in Michigan newspapers, it was in oh, Montreal Standard, all these papers talking about these giant Indians. The Blakeney brothers, med students, went up there in 1937, talked to J.W. Burns. He told them the whole scoop, and they tried to get toward Morris Mountain. Yeah. And I think it was like two or three weeks later, they finally came back just uh, wiped out. They couldn't make it. It is just too treacherous to try and get anywhere close to it. And to this day, I don't think anybody's ever been to the heart of the Sasquaha of the Chalice. That's amazing. And that's where you would have to go find people. That is amazing to think about. You make the point in the book that we think the world is a smaller world now, but, you know, there's a mountain out there that no one's ever been to? That's... I, I believe so. I believe no one's been to Morris Mountain. I, I really, unless they were in by helicopter. I don't know. Yeah. But it is just so tragic. Certainly not a publicized trip or anything like that. No. That's what you're no, saying. We would have heard about it. Right. People don't know how how unexplored British Columbia is in the heartland. Now, would you go to this this mountain? Would you? How is it still treacherous to try and get there? Oh yes, because of the gorges and and they end in dead ends, and you can't cross to the other land. I mean, it's it's like a land that time forgot. Wow, and that's what they were saying. Why the the Indians deserted? They were guides back in 1934. Deserted all the the white men going out to try and bring the Sasquatch men to book for all the damage they did in uh, Harrison Hills that the Indians kept abandoning them because it was just so treacherous to get there, and the closer they got to Sasquatch country, the more they didn't want to have anything to do with it. If I wasn't grossly out of shape, I'd suggest that you and I should go. <laughs> well, there's a few people who do want to go. I have my own organization, PNENS, which is Pacific Northwest Expedition in Siberia, because that's the, obviously what I'm talking about in the book, that area. And so I have people who, you know, one day I hope to get it going. I'm going to do the interdict theory first. That's along the Sierras. Yeah. I have the people to do that, try and get the Native American primate. But it would take quite a lot to finally get get into Canada, try and get to Morris Mountain. But I hope at least my book stimulates some who 
who want to who know what they're looking for, who know this is the last thing you wish to kill. Yeah. Because that's not going to do anything. That just proves that you were looking for something and you found it. But it doesn't tell us all we need to know. Right. So, yeah. So the, the age-old Bigfoot kill versus no-kill debate, you're squarely on the side of no-kill. No, there, there's no reason to kill. If, you know, it's clear true footage would would be undeniable. The Patterson film has so many problems with it. There's a reason why zoologists started laughing when they were watching it. I mean, it's very well done. It's a great hoax. Right. But, I mean, what you're looking at is just some uh, some monster. It's it's not something that is zoologically possible. I look at the Patterson-Gimlin film in the same way almost as like uh, the Roswell case in ufology, where it's, it's just too old, it's too muddy, there's too much contradiction, there's too many stories surrounding it to be of any real value anymore to the field. It's an overkill. Instead of that's what happens with a lot of the folklore is they get they have enough stories and they keep ginning these things out instead of going and really looking for new data, adding there too, taking it a step further. And you make the point in the book too that after they after they made the film there, then they just started looking for Bigfoot like all over the place in the area and didn't really do a concentrated search of the Bluff Creek area. Is that, yeah. that that's amazing? That's the most amazing thing I ever saw. I mean, what did they believe? Here they believed John Green, Renee DeHinden, a couple of other major Bigfooters expressed their belief this is the genuine article that what Patterson filmed. Well, there you go. You have proof of Bigfoot, but not only proof of Bigfoot, but proof of Bigfoot at Bluff Creek. Why weren't they out there with all these rifles and scopes and cameras? Why did they go all over the whole Pacific Northwest? They merely used Bluff Creek and the Patterson film to promote an entire phenomenon that they were endorsing. Yeah. It's very that's strange. Just, that's beyond logic. Uh, you know, there are people who deeply believe that Nessie exists at Loch Ness. Well, you know, they went out there with all these portables, with all these camera equipments. Uh, uh, they were manning the lake constantly, round about, <laughs> the cameraman there. Well, that's a logical response. Yeah. Uh, P&E, Tom Slick's P&E is... Uh, misguided as it was, was nevertheless a logical response to the belief that these footprints were real and they really indicated some kind of subhuman or something, some yeti that was there. But the logical response to set up base camps and be patrolling and searching the area and have brownie box cameras and, and all sorts of stuff that they did for a few years. But here, after this Patterson film, after the seemingly undeniable proof, in 1967, I mean, the Bigfooters do not come back. They just go all over. They're just promoting all these all these things about the new Sasquatch, and they're following up on all these popular eyewitness sightings now of the cone-headed giant. Yeah, yeah. No one pays attention to the Indians saying these are people. Well, the P&E couldn't have, those brownie box cameras couldn't have been much much good if uh, Rene DeHinden kept stealing all the film out of them anyway, right? Yeah, I couldn't believe he admitted to that in his book and didn't realize what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe that, that he just took the film out of those and used his own camera and didn't tell Titmus and Green, and here they're putting food on the end of the whole string. <laughs> yeah, the whole era of the big, carnival. Yeah, it's, it, it was comical. I really in, enjoyed the appearances of Rene DeHinden throughout the book as well, because he just seemed like, he just seemed so caustic, and at the same time almost a little way bitter almost as as it progressed towards the end. And he makes the point that that he didn't have time for a wife or a, or a, <laughs> or a family or kids or a dog or a mortgage or any of that crap. 
Yeah, he had to he search was one for of the funniest foot. ones imagine. <laughs> he he was you know he as I said it's a catch twenty two. He's kind of the father of of all the error. He's he's the genuine first Sasquatch hunter, and uh, he wanted that made clear. He's the first one that took this seriously, and he's the first one that made sure they believed it was a Yeti. Why do you think they made such a fundamental mistake, though? It just it just boggles the mind that no one. You know, ever? No, I, I don't know how he had. Ralph Izzard was the Daily Mail journalist. He was in charge of the famous Daily Mail expedition, along with Charles Stoner, who was the zoologist. He had the Hinden had Izzard's book. He mentioned Abominable Snowman Adventure. He has Izzard's book. He saw the footprints of the Yeti, the Shipton print. Right. He he's heard the descriptions of the Yeti as the size of a 14-year-old boy, which is closer to five feet tall with a tall cone head with this crest over the top. That's, that's no Bigfoot. That's no Sasquatch man. Uh, he, he had that. Why they, why he chose to, to I mean, he, he got to know Green. He must have seen early on Green's tracing of the Ruby Creek print. Why, why could he possibly look at both of those and say it's the same thing? So clearly, you have no ties to the paranormal connection to Bigfoot that's sort of in vogue now, or the interdimensional aspect of it. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm looking for something very tangible. It's one of the most disturbing things to me to see a unexplained or mystery topic in the public forum, something that becomes very popular. It eventually is never proven, and so these new chapters keep being added, and so much uh, froth keeps being added to it. I don't wish to hear about all the UFO stuff, about the red-eyed monsters in the night and bow-legged women walking out there trying to be mothers of a new species. You know, <laughs> I, that is that is not my world. I am looking for something that I believe is very real and can be explained and can be captured and does have a very clear origin. For two of them, anyway, our own Desonaqua and Skookum in South America, that they are actually Native American apes, if you must. Now, at the risk of, of treading into even more tenuous territory, have you looked at the the whole bipedal canine issue? Bipedal you mean werewolf? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't want to mention that. I didn't know there was still a big issue. I, 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 so if we, are we talking about a bipedal lemur or lemur, if you like? I suppose more, yeah. Well, bipedal canine. We had. I speak specifically of Linda Godfrey and her research primarily. Uh, I, I into don't. That. I don't follow that. I follow okay. uh, such as I, I speculated, not in the book, because I didn't want to go that that route. But if we have something like the Loisy, which, as I said, I think is pretty undeniable on all the circumstantial evidence in the picture. If we have an anthropoid, bipedal anthropoid that looks at, obviously, is closely related to a known genus of small quadruped monkey with a long tail, that does open up the door for something like the lemur, which is a primate. It's a monkey body and tail with, I guess you call it a, a wolf or a dog's head. What if there was an equivalent of the loisy in that species? What if there was a bipedal lemur it would look like a werewolf. It would, you know, be tailless, bipedal. It would have hands. Yeah. But it would have a bear or a wolf's head, which is what the lemur looks like. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of one right now, yeah. 
imagine that six foot tall and bipedal. That would be without a tail. Yeah. You think it was some kind of werewolf? And so I don't really research where the origin of uh, werewolves begin in popular legend. If something like that did exist, uh, a lemur, a bipedal giant lemur, something like that, anyway, like the Loisy, and that inspired it, and then, you know, you get all the folklore with it, as we did with Bigfoot. Right. But I don't know if that's the research of the, the lady you talked about. No, well, I don't think she's suggesting that, but... Maybe if she reads your book, she'll she'll sort of uh, shade that into her research because it it brings up the whole idea there that that's probably could be what it is. I mean, if we're dealing if, with if we establish the loisy is true, then that does open up the door. If one monkey species, as common as the spider monkey from South America, has an anthropoid version, for lack of a better word, that would never be a scientific word used version. If it has an anthropoid relative. Uh, why could another monkey species, why could an, uh, another primate species not have an anthropoid closely related to it? Yeah, exactly. So what's the what's the reaction to, to cryptozoology or Bigfootery, I guess you could say, to, to this Loisy thing? They've just completely thrown it out? It's completely, you know, verboten? I, I don't even hear them talking about it. Uh, someone put up a website right away. Just I have the pre-release of my book out. It's not general release, I think, for another week. But it's... Uh, the printer. I have links up to the printer where people can buy my uh, author's edition hardcover instead of the general release paperback. Yeah. Someone had a website up saying that you know, with the name of my book, Recasting Bigfoot, that uh, uh, proof of Bigfoot or something is is the Amerinthropus loisi, and it was Bigfoot proven. That's it in 1870, and that would be the encounter DeGroote had in California by Pacheco Pass, where he describes a male and female five feet tall that were whistling. Uh, like the reports in South America, yeah, which is my opinion, our, our Loise is coming north. Uh, but there's there's nothing to that page yet. So I guess some are getting ready, but people really don't talk about Loise in that connection because here we're talking about a five-foot-tall something, what is it, in South America, which no one is going to relate to Indian artwork and stone heads in the Pacific Northwest, Yeah, and then moreover relate to an eight- or nine-foot-tall conehead from the Himalayas. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's yeah. It's so that that's what's going to take a lot of people by surprise. Is that well? That's why I named it recasting Bigfoot. I'm not destroying Bigfoot. We're going to have to start calling something else Bigfoot than what we have been. That brings up the whole nomenclature idea of it. So you, you think we should just ditch the whole big? I, I obviously, I'm kind of of the opinion that we should ditch the Bigfoot name because it's kind of silly at this point. But I mean, well, we're stuck with yeah. it. <laughs> I've been on radio shows saying that Bigfoot is a hoax. Sasquatch is real. And that makes it far more easy. But I don't think the Bigfoot name will ever be ditched. We'll have to just, uh, my contention is to say, listen, it's the Skookum. It's this long, four-toed print is the true Bigfoot. This is our Native American primate. That's a lot bigger than the Loisy. So this is a giant. It's closer to what we're talking about in the legend. But I don't know if that will ever happen. But it is easier to say Bigfoot is a hoax and Sasquatch is real. There you go. And then tell people what Sasquatch is. <laughs> go through the whole thing again of one human, one primate. <laughs> and then that primate's just part of a larger set of different primates that are yes. running one, around the one globe. One species within a greater type. Exactly, yeah. Well, it just seems like this thing's just going to end up being solved by accident anyway at this point. I th no, I think we're really going to have to stalk them. Really? Gonna, my, my interdict theory, I think, could pull out if I can get enough information in advance of a couple 
moving north along the mountains and finally set up basically an area where we can survey and have guys who are appropriately licensed to dart one when they try and cross a certain area of the Sierras. Otherwise, I don't think anybody's just going to, if they do walk across one by accident and just shoot it out of fear, I mean, we've proven one is real, but it's we've lost so much data. Yeah, and you make the point you really need a live one to sort of get a better understanding of what, what this creature is. Right. See how it walks, see how it behaves, see how it interacts. As I said, I'm 31 here, so I sort of grew up in the era of the Unsolved Mysteries and, and those Time Life books and stuff like that. And it seems like in, in the time since then, as I grew older and got more into this, that the biggest breakthrough, I guess you could say, in, in Bigfootery uh, was this whole dermal ridges thing and sort of like a, for lack of a better term, fingerprint of, of Bigfoot prints. Um, what, yeah. What's your take on all that in light of what you've studied? Uh, well, then there are all these funny enlarged human feet, and that's not what we're looking for. People know how to fake uh, dermal ridges. You just shove your own handprint or footprint in there, and there's a dermal ridge. Yeah. In the mud, that's what that hoaxer in Indiana did, J.W. Parker. That Apparently, there was a bit of uh, skeptical inquirer time that just right for Grover Kranz's first time he released his book under the title uh, Big Footprints in 1992. Mm -hmm. And we all waited for that because that was the expert speaking out after 22 years. And then Skeptical Inquirer ran the article by Michael Dennett in which uh, J.W. Parker confessed having hoaxed the Indiana print, which Krantz used as the best evidence for a Sasquatch uh, east of the Rockies. And this had, you know, the, the wonderful dermal ridges. It had other... Other evidence that Krantz said is beyond hoaxer, hoaxer's kin, and uh, Dennett asked Parker what he did. And he used a walnut for the big toe, so it really looked interesting. And he put in scars and toenails, and so that it then, you know, used his own handprint to make it look like the ball of the foot pushing off, you know, so it was real, like a real working, moving foot. Right. And that's, you know, that's not too ingenious. That's something I would expect a hoaxer to know how to do. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, just how many types of footprints are we going to accept for the same thing? It's the enlarged, funny human foot. The 17, 18, 20-inch human foot is not what the Indians spoke about. That's not what Dunn traced at Ruby Creek. That certainly is not the Yeti. And so when you see these funny enlarged human feet, they're not Neanderthal footprints, which are very distinctive. I mean, they're not truly human footprints. They're just, they're like a joke store. You know, right. flat human footprint. Some sticker you take off the bottom of the tub when I was a kid in the 1970s. <laughs> so to the people out there who are listening and they're, you know, their minds have been blown by now with all this information, what the big point of the book, too, tries to get across, I guess you could say, is here's what's good evidence and here's what's bad evidence. And to sort of summarize here, the, the good evidence, you know, is the photograph of the footprint from the Himalayas, the, mm -hmm. the low As Z, the Yeti. what's that? As the Yeti. As the Yeti, there you go. Uh, the low C picture and uh, description of the body and all, you know, the entire encounter. And, and From 1920 in Venezuela. Okay. And uh, the Ruby Creek one with the tracing. In 1941, yes, by Joe Dunn and S.A. Tifting. Right. So those are like the three best pieces of evidence to what and we're And then for. for the Skookum, yes, the uh, there was a report in Idaho of a human monster, as I call it, that had a club and, and branched it and scared the heck out of uh, ice skaters at John Gooch's ranch. 
which is hard to explain whether talking about a four-toed print. Well, then the four-toed prints also turn up at Mount St. Helens, the legendary home of the Skookum. And then the Canadian Mounted Police discovered two sets of uh, four-toed prints in Manitoba in 1988, and uh, a conservation officer did in Manitoba in 1973, so that apparently the long foot monkey-like heel with four toes is genuinely the skookum. So we would say that that does indicate another species. Yeah. I would anyway. Yeah. And for the bad evidence, folks just should throw out the Patterson-Giblin film, throw out Bluff Creek, Bluff Creek, the whole the whole fear of that, and the crippled foot, that's, that's a no-go as well. Yeah, no, that's just a walk up the hill for someone to take a, uh, oh, how to clean that up. Uh, from the evidence, that was 1,089 footprints of someone who simply walked up a hill, walked around a tree, stood for a while, and, and uh, took a whiz, to put it in <laughs> layman's <for> terms, <laughs> walked down, jumped over the fence three times, walked back and forth over the fence a few times to just to accentuate the fact this is jumping over fence and not a pointless walk up the hill, walk back down toward the river, and the tracks disappeared in the river. That's that's the Cripplefoot cast. And all that all that came from that, that destroyed Bigfooteries, old Bigfooteries' reputation and what was an enormous national news coverage of the Bosberg fiasco. Those, unfortunately, were the pillars of Grover Krantz's evidence, and that, that's uh, very disappointing and shocking. And from there, really in his hands, he, he created the Gigantopithecus based on what the Hinden and John Green were already promoting. He just he just gave the appearance of scientific endorsement to their their concoctions. It's it's mind blowing stuff. I think it's amazing material. People should definitely check it out. Recasting Bigfoot is the title, of course, and uh, Bermuda Hyphen Triangle dot org is the website, right? Yes, I have a subsite for all my Bigfoot research. I just didn't want to pay for another website. There you go. <laughs> this one costs me enough a month. And have you gone to war with the Bigfooters yet over the book, or are we waiting for like the general release, then you know no, the rebuttals and the rebuttals to the rebuttals? I guess we'll be waiting for that. <laughs> that. That's when it might get nasty, or they may, might just ignore me, which is fine with me as long as people read it. And, and I don't see how they can. If if I did my data right and explained it properly. At the very least, at least they know something truly does exist, and it is not the cone-headed giant. You did an amazing job explaining it. I mean, as I said, it's it's it takes a while to sort of sift through the nomenclature of it and, and sort of wrap your mind around that we're dealing with a whole bunch of different things because people are so conditioned to the idea that we're dealing with one creature that lives around the world, and that, mm -hmm. what you're saying, is certainly not the case. That is not the case. No, it's not Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> it's not that. That's the popular image of Bigfoot, and that right. does not exist. And that's not even, yeah. And that that's a, a confabulation of all of all the... Uh, of white man's mistakes, basically. Essentially, yeah, and the hijinks of the original Bigfoot, you know, era, if you will. The original Bigfooters, yes. Yeah, yeah. Whether innocent or not... Certainly they were accusing each other of so many different things. There were some who did not like the others. But uh, some of it is just innocent, well-intentioned mistake. Some of it's very poor research. Some of it probably is quite manipulated. Well, since you know, since you say there's no good sightings since the, since the 1980s here in America and everything else, 
I guess, what do you make then of the last 30 years of Bigfoot research? <laughs> I, it's it's an attempt to glorify the old Bigfooter. It's an attempt to glorify and just add on their own chapters. Uh, but in the popular form, in, in the real accepted uh, case of sightings, no, there are no real good sightings. Even John Green was uh, good enough to say that, that it's, you know, when he updated his, his famous on the track of Sasquatch as Bigfoot Sasquatch evidence in, in 2004, it basically just leaves off with that 1979 report by Officer Dillon. Yeah. And he says most of the stuff today coming into the Internet are usually from pranksters, and it's, it's tough trying to pick out the real stuff. And when these guys, we have to remember, do try and pick out the real stuff, they're looking for something that conforms to the legend. It's, it's right. all and bipedal and cone-headed. Right. It's a, just a huge mess. <laughs> anti-theory. By scientific, scientific word would be anti-theory. It's anti-science. It's anti-theory. It is, it is a falsehood that all da- it makes all data false. It collates data and makes it inaccurate. My God. So that's what they would call anti-theory. It actually creates falsehood. Yeah. Just, just amazing. Just really, uh, you've given me a lot to think about here <laughs> over, the, over the remainder of my career here in the paranormal. It's, it's just completely changed what I think of all this. Um, so, and I hope folks go out and get it because it was amazing. They should be able to find it everywhere. I don't think Borders has it. I hear bad things about Borders going under. Yeah, I've been hearing that too. But when I went in to buy one of my own books for someone who's doing a tour and wanted uh, the uh, the prize to be uh, autographed books for my first one into the Bermuda Triangle, they didn't have them and they wouldn't order them for me. They said I could just order it online at home. Jeez. So you know what's the point of going into the bookstore? Well, why do you think they're going under? Noble will have it. <laughs> Barnes and Noble and Amazon will certainly have it. Well, that's good. Yeah, and people can find out more, of course, at uh, Bermuda-Triangle.org. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we need to cover here. We've, we've pretty much really uh, beaten the drum quite a bit on this. What do you think? Is there anything we missed? As I said, the object of the legend is, is false, but the, the pursuit is very real. There is something to find. There really is a need to go out with your scotch plaid flannel shirt and your Elmer Fudd hat and swing your rifle over your shoulder and go start traipsing the wilderness because there really is something very, very fascinating to find. Right, right. But it's not Harry and Anderson's. No, it is not. Um, all right, so we, we've sort of led people down the road to go get the book. They definitely should. I mean, I, I really can't put this over enough. Uh, hopefully they've gotten the point of how amazing and thought-provoking this this book is just by how agog I am during this conversation. I didn't expect this uh, when I picked it up. I, I thought, you know, that you were really going to sort of – Disprove some of the classic Bigfootery, but not really a wholesale reevaluation of this phenomena. So kudos to you on that, because it was very much. just tremendous stuff. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, hearing the rebuttals from people and hearing your take on those and, and your your responses to that. So, you know, I know you said you, you prefer if they leave you alone, but I'm afraid they probably won't because this is such a heretical book. Well, that's a good. <laughs> well, that's going to invite them right now. <laughs> oh no, no! I'll be, I'll be ready. I don't, uh, I don't flinch. You know, I don't. Uh, I take the public forum very seriously. I didn't do research for all these years just to put out some kind of 
tribe. I mean, I had some big publishers who were interested in this before things went south when they wanted to change my title. They actually just wanted to make it sound like a book talking about Bigfoot. And I said that their their titles are the truth about Bigfoot and case stories. And I said, that's not what this book is about. I'm recasting an entire phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. So I would not yield my title and they just, you know, tell you to beat it. Well, you know, kudos to you, dude, because this is a bold book. This is really something shocking. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. It's stunning. So, I mean, go out and get it, folks. And and while we got you for a little bit longer, at least just, you know, sort of preview. the. You got two books out right now, of course. Uh, the yeah. other ones, they flew into oblivion. So tell people about that. We we, we addressed in-depth your Bermuda Triangle research last time you were on, but, but this is like a whole other kettle of fish. Yes, this is something I think a little more controversial than the first book was a general overview of the triangle. This is the one case that made the triangle famous that eventually got everybody interested, and this is the disappearance of the five Avengers in 1945 that astounded everybody, and then the uh, the rescue plane, the PBM Martin Mariner, and went looking for them. So in one night, 14 men vanished uh, on those Avengers, and 13 on the uh, PBM. So the Navy lost six planes without trace and 27 men. And that began world interest in the very concept of disappearances out there, and that eventually led to the area being named the Bermuda Triangle in 1964. Well, this book is really quite an expose of the whole Flight 19 incident. And it is the one uh, this, as a manuscript, uh, did inspire the resolution in Congress in 2005 already when Larry Landsman, who was the, the special projects director at Sci-Fi Channel, took it to lobbyists, the whole subject matter. And so E. Clay Shaw from Florida sponsored it, and it passed 420 to 2. And the book details what really did go on that day, what the Navy controversy and complicity, and my evidence uh, that the flight actually did not even disappear in the Bermuda Triangle, but it did, in fact, disappear in the Okefenokee Swamp in southern Georgia. And there's simply too much evidence that leads to Navy complicity and incompetence into uh, some incidents that happened in the flight to a change in command. Uh, it really it, it goes into an awful lot. There's there's enough to talk about for another oh, yeah. hour, which we can't. Yeah. I don't recommend any author have two books come out a month and a half apart. <laughs> and then a third one is coming out, which is my fiction, my thriller debut, Soma, which I base on... A lot of the nonfiction information that does exist about uh, Alexander the Great's lost body and tomb in Alexandria. So I kind of weave that into my first thriller, which is entitled Soma, and that is going to be out in December. And so that's basically three books that I was editing at the same time and going crazy over. Well, now that you've got those together now, what is, you know, the obvious question that we always end the show on here? What's next for you? Uh, sounds like you're, you're sort of going to be emerging a little bit more in the world of Bigfootery, at least, uh, you know, maybe putting your other foot, you know, solidly into that realm as well as in the Bermuda Triangle. People will probably be hearing more about expeditions. I've really kept that offline and who I deal with in my PNENS. And uh, so I think they'll be hearing more, maybe seeing even, I have to try and get film footage up of Expedition Online, you know, YouTube, you can have your own channel there, mm -hmm. and a diary page where I'm keeping uh, track of stuff. And maybe I'll just do little paperback updates, like in the old days when John Green published those, you know, uh, original paperbacks, yeah. 8 by 11 stuff, when when it is, is warranted, uh, 
But uh, my actual next project is uh, getting out uh, the book on uh, the disappearance of the USS Cyclops, which is uh, the biggest mystery in the U.S. Navy. And that will be Hellship, and that's going to be out in spring of next year. Oh, wow. And it, it discusses uh, whether uh, the disappearance of the Cyclops really was our mutiny on the bounty, whether this ship did suffer mutiny or treason and was destroyed and all of our men wiped out and the few mutineers escaped. Interesting. Okay. So people should be on the lookout for that. Hellship, you say? Hellship, yes. I like that title. All right, and of course, folks, check out Bermuda-Triangle.org for more information from Gian. Well, uh, I think that this is definitely going to be one episode of the program that people are going to be talking about, not just in the immediate future, but for quite some time. Just fabric-changing material here in this book. It is stunning stuff. It gave me a whole new perspective on the Bigfoot phenomenon that I'd never even considered before. And as I said, you know, I've already gone through my own evolution in, in thought on this subject. So it, it really just changed my whole perspective on this. And I can't put it over enough. And folks should definitely go out and get this because if you are interested in Bigfoot, you don't know the half of it. Because there's so much more going on here, and, and you, Gian Gassar puts it all together here in the book. Recasting Bigfoot, uncovering the truth about Sasquatch amidst the hype of Bigfoot. This has been a fascinating conversation, Gian. Thank you for coming on the show. I know the book is just coming out now. I, know you, I haven't seen you anywhere else just yet. I'm, I assume you're going to be on doing the rounds all over the place. And We'll see what kind of publicity I get or if I get chased out of town. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, if you're chased out of town, there'll always be a place for you here on BOA Audio, so don't even worry about that. We are more than happy to give you a voice because what you're saying is bold stuff, and it's not bold stuff in the sense that it's so crazy that, <laughs> you know, this isn't laughably bold. This is thought-provokingly solid, bold stuff. This is amazing. So thank you once again for coming on the show, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Huge thanks, of course, to Gian Kassar for coming on the show. You can find out more from him at the website, www.bermuda hyphen triangle.org don't be put off by the url there is a ton of information there on recasting bigfoot including information on how you can get your hands on a copy of this thought-provoking book moving right along now it's time for the first installment of boa audio listener feedback here on season six and since it is the first time around this season we're going to do four emails so if you don't like listening to me talk tough cookies. First email comes from Sean. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I've been catching up on some BOA. Yes, I love the show. And heard you responding to Mags, giving you a sound spanking for swearing. I guess you had a fair point, but let me say this, Tim. Don't stop swearing. I know you won't. Anyway, swearing is an art and a science. I enjoy swearing, and I enjoy hearing it. Also, I smoke, too, and I always smile to myself when I hear your lighter go snick. Never forget, smoking is cool. All right, buddy, take it easy, Sean. First of all, thank you, Sean, for your endorsement of both my swearing and my smoking. I think I've cut down on the swearing for the most part here on this show. You can go to listen to the podcast, though. The swearing is in abundance on that program. I will disagree with you, though. Smoking is not cool. It costs way too much money, and it costs 
way too many lives, and if I could quit, I would do it in a heartbeat, but I'm just shackled to these gruesome, gruesome cigarettes. It is really not a very pleasant habit, and one I've tried to rid myself of over the years, as longtime listeners of the program know. Nonetheless, Sean, I appreciate your support, and I'm glad you like the snick of the lighter. I do include those in the program to keep that raw feel of the show. You know what's going on with me while I'm doing the interview. I'm smoking some butts and talking to the guests. That's the BOA way, for better or for worse. Thanks again for writing in, Sean. Much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed digging in to the BOA Audio Archive. Next email comes from Candace, No Hometown Listed. Here's what she has to say. I discovered your podcast today and spent the majority of my day cleaning house, putting up Christmas lights, etc. with you in my ear. I've listened slash subscribed to many podcasts, only to be disappointed by horrible hosts that remind me of Beavis and Butthead. So I'm so excited to find another quality podcast with awesome guests. Great show. Can't wait to go through more of the back catalog. Yay. Signed, Candace. Thank you for writing in, Candace. Much appreciated for your feedback. I don't really have anything too in-depth to say in response to this one, except just that these are the kind of emails that give you just a warm feeling inside, kind of like the emails we get from the international listeners. It's just humbling to me to think that Candace is out there somewhere putting up her Christmas lights and listening to BOA audio. I'm in the Candace home somehow, and, and, and thank you, Candace, for welcoming me into your home. I really appreciate it, and it really just makes me almost tongue-tied to uh, express the the weird but humbling and also appreciative feeling I get when I hear from folks like Candace who write in and say that I'm keeping them company while they put up Christmas lights or riding to work with them every morning or, you know, keeping them up at night while they try to get to sleep. So thanks for writing in, Candace. Really appreciate your email. Email number three is a response to last week's season premiere. comes from Brian. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Season 6 sounds like it's off to a great start. I always enjoy hearing Jim Mars take on things. I'm writing to let you know that the Federal Reserve is audited every year, and it can be accessed through public record. Please research about CAFRs, Comprehensive Annual Financial Reports. Everything you want to know about where the money goes is in that document. All politicians know this. The whole audit the Fed thing is a smokescreen. Here's a link to prove my point. And the URL for that is www.cafr1.com slash fraudit.html. Let me give you that again. C-A-F-R and then the number one dot com slash fraudit.html. Blessings to you and yours this holiday season, Brian. First of all, right back at you, Brian, on the holiday season blessings Thank you, sir. Much appreciated, and hope you have a great holiday season as well. Truth be told, I haven't had a chance to check out this link that Brian sent me, but I wanted to share it with all you folks here at the end of the program. Regardless of who we have on the show, week in and week out, we always want to give you the best information available. So if somebody writes us in after the fact with new information or a correction or a challenge, We try to share it with you listeners at the end of the show. So check out that link I gave you that Brian sent and find out for yourself what he's talking about and make up your own mind about this Federal Reserve audit issue. 
Thank you, Brian, for writing in. Thank you for sharing the information with the VOA Audio listeners. That's what this program is all about. Great guests with great information and awesome, intelligent listeners like you, Brian, with open minds. And the final email here this week on BOA Audio Listener Feedback comes from Pauline, no hometown listed. Here's what she has to say. I'm not sure how I happened upon your site, but I am really glad that I did. I've been listening to all of the archived MP3s. They're really great. There's one that I want to listen to, but when I click on it, a weird advert comes up. It's the Paula Harris interview from 11-4-2006. Is it me, or is there some kind of funkiness happening? Don't worry, I'm not some podcast vampire sucking free entertainment from your site. I'm waiting until Friday, payday, to donate money to the site. I'll donate weekly, otherwise I'd feel too guilty to listen. So far, my favorite guests have been George Knapp, Adam Davies, and Angela Joyner from Stephenville, Texas. I liked that all these people seemed level-headed and rational, yet have an open mind about extra-earthly subjects. I live in Boston and work downtown in one of the most boring financial firms on the planet. So your podcasts are a godsend. Thank you again for the entertaining and intelligently done audio casts. If you need any help with anything at BOAHQ, send me an email. I'd love to get involved. Thanks again, Pauline. What a great email from Pauline. Let me touch on a few talking points contained in this one. First of all, Pauline has hit a hot topic among BOA Audio listeners, and that is the Paula Harris interview from 11-4-2006 when we made the switch to BOA 2.0, somewhere along the way, the linkage to that got all messed up, and I think it may have been messed up on BOA 1.0, and I never noticed before, but strangely enough, I've gotten tons and tons of emails about this Paula Harris MP3 glitch over the last few weeks and months, so I'm definitely going to look into it once I find some time. Trust me, I'm well aware that there's a problem with that link at the BOA website. We're going to dig into it, we're going to find out, and I'll mention it here at the end of the show once it is fixed. But be patient. could take another couple weeks or a month or so. I'm working like a dog this month here in December. Regarding the donation, first of all, thank you in advance for this donation you're going to make to BOA. I don't want to make anybody feel guilty, though. I felt guilty at the end of last week's episode Because I delineated, you know, between the donors and the non-donors. I don't ever want to be like that. I don't want to ever have to force people to donate to BOA and turn this ship into a premium ride. That's not my intention at all. And I felt kind of guilty at the end of last week's season premiere because we had sort of drawn the line between donors and non-donors. But you're all together again now, folks. Don't worry. There's no bias or favoritism involved here. Believe me, I know times are tough for a whole lot of people, and I know that BOA provides some free entertainment to them that otherwise they may not be able to get if we had to charge them for it. I don't want anyone to ever feel guilty because they can't afford to donate to Banal of America. Don't. Please. Don't feel guilty. It's my pleasure to provide you with this entertainment, and if you can help us out, if you have the extra change, then make the donation. But don't ever go hungry because you feel guilty and you donate to Banal America. That would just break my heart, so don't do that. Thank you for your insight on the favorite guests. Hope you enjoy digging into the BOA Audio Archive. I will definitely be in touch since you are in the Boston area. We're trying to put together a little coterie of BOA folks in the Massachusetts region, so anyone else in the 
Boston area or the suburbs of Boston, definitely shoot me a line because there's a good chance we'll get some stuff cooking here in 2011 for Boston BOA folks. That pretty much does it here on the emails. Once again, thank you to Pauline for writing in. Thank you to Brian. Thank you to Candace. And thank you to Sean. Congratulations, you're all a part of the first BOA Audio listener feedback of Season 6. Before I give you the contact info, let's address one of the most famous hot topics here on BOA Audio listener feedback at the end of the show. Unfortunately, I don't have any new information about our beloved William Zabel. I tried contacting him, tried calling him, tried emailing him over the summer, did not hear from him yet again. William, if you're out there listening, dude, get in touch. People are talking and they're crying out for info on you and wondering where the hell you went. So get in touch with me, William, or if you know William Zabel, let me know what's going on because I've just heard from countless people about this whole strange turn of events. If you want to be a part of future editions of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, if you have thoughts on this week's provocative edition of the program, let me know what you thought of Gian Kassar's seriously mind-blowing Bigfoot research. Here are the means to get in touch with me. You can go to banallofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. Click the contact button. That'll put you on the road to emailing me. Or you can just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And the other big method is to join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. It is BOA's Paranormal Playground, the official Banal of America forum, the US of E.com. Come on over, join up, join in on the conversations, and have some fun with the gang at the US of E. And of course, I'm part of all those different social networks, although I'm on the verge of ditching MySpace once and for all, but I'm still there for now, barely ever logging in. So you can reach me primarily at Facebook, also Twitter, and then finally MySpace. Befriend me, follow me, poke me, it's all good. One last note on listener feedback, I've gotten a ton of super long emails. Sit tight, folks who wrote those emails. I will get back to you in due time. Trust me, it takes a while to dissect those emails and respond to them and put the time and effort in to the response that you put into this long emails that you send me. Trust me, I read them all, and I try to get back to you guys as soon as possible. I think that wraps up listener feedback. Get in touch with me if you want to be a part of future segments of VOA Audio Listener Feedback or just want to share your thoughts on the program and the website as a whole. Looking forward to hearing from all you great folks out there. Up next, it is the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to roll through the list of the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. The updates have been a little light at BOA over the last week, and that is entirely my fault. I'm actually sitting on three new columns from the outstanding BOA staff, Richard Thomas, Leslie, and Regan Lee. Those will be posted also in short order. Trust me, over the course of the next week, you're going to be able to read a lot of cool stuff from the BOA staff. I've just been insanely busy, but we've got them all locked and loaded and ready to roll. We say it week in and week out here at the end of the program, but it bears repeating because it is true. 
If you're only listening to Banal of America audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Traditionally, this is the part of the program where we ask you to make a donation to BOA and help support Banal of America. I already sort of talked about this. I don't want to beat a dead horse, so let me just give you the means to make the donations if you can. First, you can go to Banal of America. There's a Donate PayPal button right there on the home page. Click that. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It is safe and secure. But maybe you don't trust PayPal. Maybe you don't trust the Internet, and you want to make a snail mail donation. Well, you can do that as well. Here's the address to mail donations to. It is as follows. Tim Banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. Once again, Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T, Mass, 01866. couple of notes on the snail mail donations. First of all, include an email address with your donation so I can shoot you a line and say thanks. And in addition to that, if you're going to send me a check, please make it out to Tim Benal and not Benal of America. My bank, they're just sticklers about this sort of thing, and they get on my case big time if the check is made out to Benal of America and not Tim Benal. So from their lips to your ears, make the checks payable to Tim Benal. And thank you, thank you, thank you to all the folks out there who have been making donations and who will be making donations in the future. You are doing a huge part in keeping BOA and Benal of America up and running, commercial-free, and freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, our guest is Bix Weir. He is the man behind the Road to Ruta Financial Conspiracy Theory. And much like this week's edition of the program here with Gianca Sar, next week's edition of the program will be Bix Weir's first ever interview on his Road to Ruta Conspiracy Theory. Bix is going to detail his unique theory that the current financial crisis was actually created by beneficent forces within the banking industry in order to return the United States to prosperity, thwart a new world order, and return America to a gold standard. We'll find out how he came to these conclusions and what they mean for the U.S.'s financial crisis going forward. It's an educational, albeit terrifying, edition of the program that will have you watching the mainstream news with a more jaundiced eye. It's Bix Weir talking about the Road to Ruta Conspiracy Theory on BOA Audio Season 6 next week. Check it out. And on that note, I've talked far too much here at the end of the show, but I want to get a lot out there, especially with the return of listener feedback. So once again, let me thank Gian Kassar for coming on the show. Check out the book, Recasting Bigfoot. It will blow your mind, folks. And thanks to Pauline, Brian, Candice, and Sean for contributing to BOA Audio listener feedback. You guys rock. And by extension, the BOA Audio listeners rock as well. Thank you for jumping back on the ship. You are the fuel that drives the machine. You are the BOA Audio listeners. You are the best. And I can't thank you enough for your support. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. So until next time, this is Tim Benal, thanking you for listening and signing off.